All right, good morning and welcome to the program. Great to have your company. It is Wednesday, January 27, the day after Australia Day. Hope you had a wonderful day yesterday. Gee, it was nice to wake up to some cooler weather this morning. No wonder I slept a little better last night. Nice southerly rolling in overnight. Just a sprinkle of rain in my neck of the woods. Did you get me? Let me know. Uh, but certainly a fair bit cooler around most of our listening area this morning. Give us a call. Let us know what's on your mind. 13 12 69 is the telephone number. And your views as always, 131269, if you would like to send a text number to the program, 0458 049 209. And of course, emails are welcome. MP in the morning at 2smsupernetwork.com. Uh, that'll get directly to me here in the studio. Uh, we're here until midday today. Of course, things slowly getting back to normal for a brand new working year. From next Monday, we'll be back to our normal start time of 5am through till 9. Uh, of course, John Law is returning next Monday for his 68th year of broadcasting. So here we are. How did you go yesterday for Australia Day? I thought it was a a pretty good day. Uh, There were some Invasion Day protests, as we were expecting. Uh, But I have to say, from what I saw, most people were behaving themselves and there was social distancing at a lot of these protests. And people were masking up. Uh, And at least, I think, I don't know the exact title in Sydney, uh, maybe a few thousand and only uh, a couple of arrests. So I think in all it was fairly peaceful. And some of the vision that's coming through on television screens well, last night and this morning on how we celebrated Australia Day yesterday was quite amazing. And there was definitely, definitely uh, a feel of in of. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and the Indigenous in all of the celebrations from the Sydney Opera House lighting up in Indigenous colours to the Aboriginal flag flying on the Sydney Harbour Bridge. What about the citizenship ceremonies around our country? Wonderful to see so many smiling faces of new Australians draped in an Australian flag celebrating the day they, well, became Australian citizens. And really, that's what the day should be all about. Anyway, if you want to have your say, 13 12 69, the telephone number. Look, the latest ComSec State of the States report shows the New South Wales government has turned the state from a robust engine room to the laggard of Australia. The New South Wales economy delivering its worst performance in eight years. 
New South Wales was ranked equal sixth with Western Australia, only ahead of the Northern Territory in a ranking of all states and territories. Now, according to the state opposition, the report makes for sad reading. New South Wales used to lead the nation, and now it follows the other states and territories. The Berejiklian government has to do more than rely on hope, the opening of international borders and a successful rollout of a COVID vaccine. The opposition's calling for the Berejiklian government to review its current stimulus measures as they are clearly not reaching businesses and their workers. If this report card does not spur on the New South Wales government into action, then we face a generation of young people not able to reach their full potential. So this is about the Comsec State of the States State and Territory Economic Performance Report, which is released today. The Comsec report showed that New South Wales was ranked equal sixth with Western Australia on overall economic performance, sixth for economic growth, sixth on employment performance, that's unemployment, behind the ACT, South Australia, Tasmania, Western Australia and Victoria, fourth for retail spending and dwelling starts. I mean, it all comes on the back of last week's ABS Labor Force data showing that New South Wales lost 17,000 jobs and credit rating agency S&P Global's decision to downgrade New South Wales' credit rating from AAA to AA plus last December. Look, it is fair to say that New South Wales has copped one of the hardest burdens when it comes to dealing with the pandemic. We've allowed... A lot of the return travellers, if you like, and those coming in to hotel quarantine to be put up in our state. But we really, and of course, COVID-19 has had a big dampener on all economic activity around Australia. But we should be very, very concerned, I feel. New South Wales used to lead the way. We were top of the pops in Australia when it came to manufacturing, when it came to our economy, when now right down the bloody bottom. It's not good enough. It is not good enough. Maybe the Premier and the Treasurer need to stop re-announcing, you know, old silly schemes like restaurant vouchers which don't work and start getting the money flowing through the economy. And the other problem we have, of course, is that job seeker payments will reduce and JobKeeper will end on March 28. And that could see the New South Wales economy headed for even more serious headwinds. The government needs to take its hands off the steering wheel. Oh, sorry, I beg Well, the government needs to put its hands back on the steering wheel um, and need to obviously incre- increase jobs. I mean, there are 277,000 unemployed people in New South Wales right now. In December alone, 17,071 people in New South Wales lost their jobs. Two-thirds of those jobs were held by women. So there you go. 13 12 69, the telephone number to have you say this morning. June, are you there? Oh, yes. Morning, June. How are you? Not too bad, thank you. Excellent. I was just uh, ringing to try and work out why people are picking on uh, Lady Tennis 
apply her because she's got one uh, on her because of her tennis ability. Well, she actually has quite a few honours, but yes. And uh, she's better than anyone else in the world at the moment with the amount of games she won or something. Yep. And But it's mainly to do with her religious beliefs from the Bible. Uh, no, it's probably more to do with the fact that uh, she is a little bigoted and stuck back in the 1950s with some of her thoughts uh, in relation to same-sex marriage, gay couples, uh, and some of her language has been very hurtful to a number of people. I think the... Uh, look, I think the criticism of Margaret Court was over the top, absolutely. Maybe, uh, as some have suggested, we should be looking perhaps at rejigging the way the awards are handed out. I mean, even I see Anthony Albanese yesterday saying there's no justification for promoting tennis great Margaret Court to the highest order of Australia because she hasn't played the sport in decades. Albo launched a scathing attack on the honours system and the promotion of Miss Court from an officer to a companion of the order claiming he couldn't see the basis for it. And I agree. I can't see the basis for it either. It can't be for her tennis prowess because she had already been awarded an an officer for that. So she's already got one of the highest gongs that you can get. And Margaret Court has not played tennis for decades. Now, Miss Court apparently said that she was disappointed that Anthony Albanese had criticised the award, which she had been told was to recognise her tennis achievements, whereas her previous honour was for her community work. There is no doubt that Margaret Court has done some outstanding work in the community. I mean, I, I read about it yesterday and I spoke about it yesterday on Australia Day. Margaret Court has absolutely, through her Christian work, provided meals the homeless. She's done some outstanding charity work. Outstanding charity work for which she's already been recognised. She's also already been recognised previously for her sporting prowess. And look, we're not stupid. People aren't stupid. Uh, This award, you know, the upping of the honours to Margaret Court was very political. In fact, if you go through the list of a number of people who received awards, why is it that mostly it always seems to be high-profile, elite people, whether they're sports people or otherwise, who get Australia Day honours? Haven't these people been rewarded enough? Haven't they already received some of the highest accolades they can from within their communities, from within their business or uh, you know, business communities, if you like, within their sporting communities. Why do we always... I mean, that's this is where I agree with those who say the Australia Day Honours awards perhaps need to be rejigged and rethunk. Having said that, though, how outstanding is the Australian of the Year? I mean, just amazing. The young woman that won the major gong... Uh, Miss Grace, the sexual assault survivor from Tasmania, 26 years of age, one of our very youngest recipients of the Australian of the Year Award. Absolutely. Somebody who deserves the highest accolade. 
not a former tennis star, not a former cricket star, not a former anything star, a former victim, or perhaps even a continued victim, if you like, of sexual abuse, because that sort of stuff will live with her forever. Anyway, uh, if you want to talk about it, 13 12 69, the telephone number. Uh, again, maybe we should reserve perhaps more of our disappointment in the whole Margaret Court situation, if you are disappointed, with the way the system is set up. Because in my mind, why do we, why should we keep rewarding the elites? No matter what sport they're from, no matter whether they're from, from business, for goodness sake. Why continually award the elites? Why can't we give a leg up or prop up other Australians who are, you know, equally deserving, who perhaps haven't made millions of dollars from their sporting careers or perhaps haven't made it big time in the world of business and don't live in harbourside mansions and drive around in flash cars? More people like Grace, less people like Margaret. Genuine talk on the radio. This is Marcus Paul in the morning. If we all agreed all the time, oh, how boring would life be? Absolutely, mate. Uh, isn't yep. it great that we live in a country where we can have different opinions because there are a lot of places around this globe where you can't? You know, it's yeah, uh, that's a part of, of living in Australia, our, our democracy. And as, I, as I've said most of the morning... Mates, as I've said, Dave, uh, we won the lottery of life living in this wonderful country. We're bringing you all the news and the views. Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, give me a call, 13 12 69, the telephone number, uh, 23 after 6. On this Wednesday, January 27, now Lifesavers in Sydney were kept busy yesterday with 194 rescues. Our beaches were packed, as we know, for Australia Day with people urged to social distance and be safe around the water. The hot weather that's drawn Sydney siders to the beaches over the past few days has, of course, come to an end. As I mentioned at the start of the program, how much easier was it to sleep after a bit of a change overnight? I haven't had a couple of sprinkles around my neck of the woods. A southerly brought temperatures back to the mid-20s and showers are forecast for some time today, particularly for my Sydney listeners on 2SM. So thank goodness we might get back to some normal sleeping patterns. All righty, give me a call, 13 12 69, if you would like to have you say. Walt Secord joins us from the opposition after 7 o'clock in New South Wales for the latest Comsec State of the States report. It doesn't look good. Yeah, you can be the greatest, you can be the best... More news and genuine talk on the radio? Then stick with us. All right, welcome back. Give me a call, 13 12 69, the telephone number. Emails, MP in the morning at 2smsupernetwork.com. And, of course, if you want to send us a text, 0458-049-209. It is Wednesday, January 27. Marcus Paul returns for 2021, January 11. In 2021, 2SM has Sydney talking. Hello, Chris. How are you, mate? Pretty good, Marcus. You? All right, thank you. Welcome to Wednesday, my friend. <laughs> same, same to you. Thank you. Hey, um, look, Australia Day's out of, out of the... Out of the way now, like it's yesterday. Yeah. But Australia Day is to celebrate how far we've come, 
and all the rights that we've managed to achieve in this country, like freedom of speech and freedom of ideas and freedom of religion. Well said, and yes. And we've got many in this country. Mm. I, I just can't understand the, the certain subjects that if anybody doesn't toe the line and doesn't agree on, all of a sudden they find themselves totally persecuted in the media. And, of course, this relates to Margaret Court and Israel Folau and, and others it's happened to. I, I just don't think that that's freedom of speech or equal democracy. Well, let's look at it. Let's break it's it down. Well, yes and no. Let's break it down. Um, the reason Israel Folau, uh, I mean, I despise the comments that he's made, but I respect the fact that he has the right to say them in a democracy. The problem with Israel is that he upsets a major sponsor, rightly or wrongly, of Rugby what, Australia. What exactly did Israel Folau say that was so offensive? Well, to people of uh, same-sex couplings and et cetera, um, you know, you'd have to ask them. But Well, he said he didn't agree with it. Well, that's right. But the majority that, that isn't that offensive. That's a well, freedom. It, well, hang on, mate. It is if you're a if you're a gay person, you would feel persecuted. Could you imagine if there was somebody out there saying, uh, I don't know, uh, let's just say we don't like people with the name Chris, and people with the name Chris should be ostracised because they are simply named Chris. You know what I, I mean? I, I don't think that's a fair comparison. Well, you don't. Well, of course you don't, because you're not gay uh, and you're not a part of that community. Well, like, um, I, even if I'm not saying you're wrong or right, Chris. I'm not saying so that you're wrong or right. Has a gay person ever been persecuted for for saying that they agree with gay marriage? I haven't heard of anybody being persecuted in the media for saying they agree with gay marriage. Sorry, just again, that that phone dropped out. Just one more time. Sorry, mate. I haven't heard anybody yep. in the media being persecuted for saying they agreed with gay marriage. I've only heard people being persecuted because they said they didn't agree with it. Well, it depends what media you consume and who you choose well, to... Well, I've consumed a lot of media yeah. over the years, I can assure you. Well, look, again, um, I've, I've tried to break it down. A lot of the reasons... Uh, I know it's not simple. No, uh, look, a lot of the reasons around Israel Folau is not only the fact that some of the comments that he made were uh, offensive and controversial in relation... But they went against his contract. Uh, yes, there was that. Uh, and let, let's look at Margaret Court. My issue with Margaret Court, I mean, is mostly to do with... Uh, m this is me personally. My problem with the whole Margaret Court thing, and it's not just Margaret Court, is the awarding continuously of Australia Day honours to elite people. I, uh, the, the only thing I've seen Margaret Court in the headlines for, not any of her, her, her work in Western Australia, but only for this issue. Uh, well, that's not true, because her work in WA and the wonderful work she's done uh, for charities uh, has been uh, publicised very uh, extensively, uh, you know, in the ABC, for instance. And Well, in the last couple of days, yes. No, even previously. Even previously. See, I've never seen, it, never seen it before, didn't know about it. All right, well, look, 
well, you didn't know about it because, I mean, do you consume the Murdoch media? Do you watch mainstream television? You got to remember, mate. Uh, they they swing the agenda here, and they I'll like leave. to be controversial and they like to be divisive. Why on earth would you? Yeah. Why on earth would they run a, a front page story on Margaret Court feeding the homeless when people would say, "Oh, that's nice." You know, yeah, the way it exactly. works, mate. That's, what they want to exactly do is what... they'll run a story saying Margaret Court uh, says she hates gay people and it's the work of the devil because it's controversial and it'll sell newspapers and people... Well, will I don't think she listen. said she hates gay people. Wow. Semantics. Anyway, that, that's all I wanted to say. It's just a bit of a, a very complicated kind of thing and a, a, it seems to be a little one-sided. Yeah, well, I blame uh, a lot of the mainstream press for that because, quite simply, they choose to be divisive. They choose to uh, be very sen- – uh, they use a lot of censorship in the information they provide to the public. And you're right, actually, when you say, you know, in relation to Margaret Court's charity work, of course, a lot of that hasn't been publicised. You never see it on the 90% front. of yeah. Australia wouldn't know about that. Well, that's right, because unfortunately 90% of Australia consume one form of media that's operated by the Murdoch press, and, and they like TV, to be divisive. TV is terrible. Wow. It depends, <laughs> right. what, See you later, Mark. depends what television you consume, uh, and that's why try as much as you can to have a little, little look at independent sources of media, um, and then you might know a little bit more. I know it's difficult. I get it. That's why we try and do things a little differently on this program. I try, and to offer an alternate. Uh, anyway, thirteen twelve sixty nine. Uh, that's why we're independent here on this radio station, on this program. Anyway. Sixty-nine, the telephone number. Let's go to Mick. Very soon, Walt Secord joining us on the program. Uh, I want to talk about the Comsec State of the States report in just a moment. But Mick, are you there, mate? I am here. How are you this morning? Well, thank you, Mick. Seventeen to seven. What's on your mind, my friend? Mate, it's the same free speech laws that allow Margaret Court to say that you know God frowns upon homosexuals, and that allows Israel to say that they're all going to hell. It also allows Australians to say she's a silly old chook. It allows, wow. and the reason you're hearing a lot, they're the same laws. Yeah, and true. It's, it's the reason you're hearing a lot about it. Yeah, and a, a lot of controversy from the other side is because. According to the plebiscite, most people disagree with Margaret Court and Israel Folau. Well, that's right, and that's the point that so I, I tried to make. <laughs> that's right. So that's why most of the debate is going against them. And if you want to get around quoting the Bible, I mean, that's, it's quite offensive. So to, to people that Israel says, you are going to hell. That's sort of vilification. Of course what it is. What if we were to get around quoting the Bible saying, people of his colour should be my servant? It says it in the Bible. Well, but I don't say that. Well, of you course, know, like, yeah. That, that's, that's quite offensive. Well, I because agree. Should, uh, I've got to put my neighbour to death because he's planted two different crops in the same field. <laughs> that would be a bit offensive towards my neighbour, even though I don't really like him. 
Yeah. See, that's why uh, I frown upon people getting on, uh, you know, any program that I um, broadcast on and, and, you know, going on about religious sermons and and religious teachings in the Bible. Some of it needs to be updated. The same free speech laws apply to both sides. And if people want to really rip him another one, or her, or we want people want to say how disgusting they think they are, that's fine. We have these free speech laws, and free speech stops us from the the need to be violent. One of the problems nowadays with it is you look at when someone right wing goes to visit a university campus nowadays, the Neanderthals start shaking cars, breaking windows, ripping shirts off people. Whereas back in the day, yep. the intellectuals we had on universities used to welcome people like that, mm. right-wingers like whatever his name was, that Genopolis, and they'd tear strips off them with their tongue. Well, that's Nowadays, right. unfortunately, they've lost that ability, so they gain the Neanderthal on them. All right, mate, well said. Thank you, Mick. Appreciate the call, 13 12 69. Okay, the latest ComSec State of the States report, as I mentioned at the top of the program, it shows that the New South Wales government is losing its way. It's turned the state from a robust engine room to the laggard of Australia. Our economy in New South Wales delivering its worst performance in eight years. New South Wales was ranked equal sixth with WA, only ahead of the Northern Territory in a ranking of all states and territories. How much of this is to be blamed on COVID-19? Well, it's fair to say there's probably a little bit, a little bit. New South Wales has done the vast majority of the heavy lifting when it comes to hotel quarantine, etc. Let's talk to Walt Secord, the New South Wales Shadow Treasurer, about this. Walt, good morning to you, mate. Good morning, Marcus, and Happy New Year. You too. Uh, now, let's have a look here. Uh, we're running sixth, well, equal sixth with WA on overall economic performance, sixth for economic growth, sixth on employment performance, uh, fourth for retail spending and dwelling starts. New South Wales is the most populous territory in, uh, in the country. It was formerly known as the engine room of Australia, yep. no longer. Yep. Absolutely. Um, these problems predate COVID. It started before COVID, but... Anyone who is without a job, struggling with fewer hours, they don't care about whether it's COVID. They just want the government to kick into gear and to get people back to work because everyone is worrying about keeping a roof over their head and food on the table. So there's a number of programs the government says that they have involving COVID and there's the job keeper at the federal level. I would like to see the bear jiggling government. I want to be constructive. I want to see them working with the federal government to keep JobKeeper in place, especially for tourism businesses in rural and regional areas. I just saw some data a couple of days ago. In western New South Wales, 3,000 jobs. that We now have 3,000 fewer jobs than we had before COVID in western New South Wales. 2,000 of those jobs lost were involving women. So it's disproportionately hit women and young people. We're all in this together. I want to see people back into jobs. Why is it uh, that we are floundering in New South Wales? I mean, it's got to be more than just, you know, job losses. Is it a policy problem? Walt, what is it? Well, it's um, one of my colleagues actually this morning, I heard him on radio talking about, we also have to see medium-sized and small infrastructure projects. Yes, a couple of big infrastructure projects are good for Sydney, but we have to make sure that the stimulus measures are spread across the state. 
And the fair, the fair spread of infrastructure stimulus projects does not go beyond Sydney or eastern Sydney or Sydney's north. It's got to go to rural and regional areas. All right. So, so you're saying essentially, sorry, you're saying essentially all of the big ticket items are in Sydney. They're Sydney-centric, they're East Coast-centric, and there's not much happening elsewhere, and that's what's leading to this economic downturn. Yeah, yeah, you've hit the nail on the head. That's what the view is. Small to medium-sized projects are what get tradies and small businesses in rural and regional areas creating jobs, and then they go into shops, they buy a lotto ticket, they pick up the papers, they buy a coffee, they buy a, a bacon and egg roll, and they create other jobs. You've got to get money flowing into the economy. That's why I've called for a redirection or a reassessment of the stimulus measures. Now, the government claims that they've um, provided assistance to small business. We haven't seen that. I mean, when you speak to small businesses, that hasn't occurred. But I'll tell you who have been the true champions during COVID. The true champions have been worker, um, have been um, companies that have kept on workers and kept people in jobs because yeah. once you lose once you lose an employee, then you have to retrain and you can't get them back. Are they falling into the the trap of the federal uh, governments and the prime minister? I mean, he's a marketing and uh, promotions genius. Uh, I mean, we know <laughs> that the premier Gladys Berejiklian and the treasurer Dominic Perrottet announced a, a restaurant voucher scheme. I'm yet to see anything on this. Uh, again, it was a big announcement and all the rest of it, but there's been no follow through. And uh, I mean, many people have argued, well, that's great for people that bloody live in Manly and maybe want to go and spend the vouchers at Hugo's. But for God's sake, how's it, that going to help people in regional New South Wales? Why didn't they start this program, this restaurant voucher you know, where the government and taxpayers are, are footing the bill for people to go out and dine and spend money in these sorts of uh, fields uh, in the hospitality sector. Why why isn't that happening in Wollongong, Newcastle, down in Albury, Wodonga? Why isn't it happening down on the Murray? Why isn't it happening out in the Central West in Bathurst and Orange and all in Wagga and all these regions? Well, absolutely. They announced the program, I think, in around um, October, November, and then they delayed it. Because I was actually at the business summit with the, the the treasurer, I attended. They invited me. I participated in complete in this complete spirit of bipartisanship. And they announced this program. And I thought, oh, that's this is a good this is a good idea. Um, it's patterned on what occurred in the United Kingdom and other states and territories. But then I started receiving representations from rural and regional businesses saying uh, it's going to start in Sydney CBD and then the Northern Beaches, but it's not going to start in rural and regional areas. Then they announced it would be trialed in Broken Hill. I thought, okay, but what about the rest of rural and regional New South Wales? Then, tourism operators came forward and said, well, Tasmania, South Australia, and the Northern Territory have a similar voucher program, but it is extended to tourism. And I thought, yes, places like Tamworth, which don't have the the Country Music Festival, didn't occur this year. Yep. You have empty motel rooms up there. So I still think... You, you, like, let's not let perfection be the master of going forward. If the government has to tweak and review these programs, I will work with them and I'll support those. Well, reviews. I'm not hearing a word about this program from anybody. Uh, nobody's rung me to tell me, oh, my, it's great, Marcus. I got to go well, out. Because it hasn't started yet. Well, been, why not? It's promised and promised and promised. Again, I'd like the government to bring it forward, tweak it, extend it, and make it available to tourism for accommodation in rural and regional areas. Now, today is probably, for many people, the start of the new work year. 
And, you know, people, we, we've all holidayed locally to what are called stay vacations or local vacations or the state and rural and regional areas. Mm. Um, I'm sorry, that's going to stop now because people are going to go back to work. Yeah, yep. So, but so we're all in this together. I'm a grandfather. I want my grandsons to be able to get to work, get an education, and buy a house. So we're all in this together. Let's get through this. And the government should tweak these programs and use today's report as a bit of a, a warning signal. All right. Good to chat, Walt, as always, mate. Thank you. Thank you, Marcus. Bye-bye. All right. The New South Wales Shadow Treasurer, Walt Secord. I think he makes some good sense there. Um, why don't we extend this so-called voucher system to tourism? allow it to be used for accommodation in the regions. I mean, why is this New South Wales government so Sydney-centric? I mean, if you look at uh, the stats here, overall, 277,000 people are unemployed in New South Wales. The latest data reported that 17,000 people in New South Wales lost their jobs in December alone. Two-thirds of the jobs were lost, uh, lost were held by women Uh, And the participation rate for New South Wales dropped to, well, this figure, 65.5% in December from 65.9% in November. So it's going the wrong way. What do we do about it? 13 12 69, the telephone number if you would like to have your say. Marcus Paul in the morning. New South Wales recorded its ninth consecutive day of zero community transmissions of COVID-19. Uh, we'll have some more details on COVID uh, after our 7 o'clock news, 6 o'clock Queensland time. But the news is not good in the UK. They passed 100,000 deaths. Now, for my Port Macquarie listeners, detectives have charged a woman over alleged fraud relating to bushfire and COVID-19 support recovery grants. The 32-year-old woman's accused of obtaining six New South Wales government grants in Kempsey, totalling 60 grand. She's appeared in Port Macquarie Court. Uh, She's in custody and she'll be back before the magistrate this morning. All right, it is a Wednesday, January 27. Give me a call, let me know what's on your mind. Plenty of news. We need your views. 13 12 69, the telephone number. Emails MP in the morning at 2smsupernetwork.com. In 2021, 2SM has Sydney talking. And look, yesterday, being Australia Day, I'm sorry to say the nutters were out in full force. Mate, this is the most redneck radio station that's going on. This, you can't talk to it. You can't get a decent word across the airways if you don't agree with some of your fellow radio announcers. What are they trying to do? Still, uh, listeners from TGB, like. I want to talk about the Margaret uh, Court fiasco. Oh, three cheers for Margaret Court. She's a dead set legend. Uh, she's got the gullies and she's able to stand up and, against these rednecks. If you want to look at what's going on, Trumpy, they stole the election off him. There's a thing called Rebel News, and it's all just starting to come out. Also, the Trumpet.com talks about uh, how they stole the election. <laughs> we are so blinded out here in the West with this cockley doodle dude nonsense these guys keep putting down on us, mate. We're just so stupid here in the West. We, you wouldn't feed after us. We're all walking around with a stupid mask on, all the different influenza A and B. I've had a gut full of this radio station. Cock, cockley doodle doo, mate. All uh, cockley doodle doo. 
all the news and your views. Marcus Paul in the morning. I feel so much dumber having just listened to that bloke. Uh, he's a regular who calls every now and then. He's just a nutter, an absolute tin hat, tin foil hat wearing moron. Speaking of morons, Craig Kelly, a vaccine expert behind a push to make big tech accountable for coronavirus disinformation has labelled comments from Craig Kelly appalling and destructive, pleading with the Prime Minister Scott Morrison to put the MP in his place. The Liberal MP, who represents the Southern Sydney electorate of Hughes, has developed a social media following by promoting wild claims about COVID-19 that some health experts claim amount to misinformation. Among the claims posted include statements that's asking, sorry, that asking children to wear face masks is tantamount to child abuse. Such claims pose a threat to the vaccine rollout in Australia, according to Immunisation Coalition Chief Executive Kim Sampson, who says it's appalling. He should be pulled into shape. It's just totally unacceptable for somebody with a national voice to be putting out that kind of misleading and abhorrent information. It shocks me when I read that kind of stuff, and I really believe our Prime Minister needs to step up and put Craig Kelly in his place. Well... ScoMo has been on, what, our opposing radio station here in Sydney down the road? Has anybody put that question to him? Nah, it's all matey mates. All matey mates. Um, That's why uh, the liar from the Shire doesn't bother coming on this program because he won't like the questions that are asked of him. 13 12 69 is the telephone number. Stuff him anyway, we don't need him. Nine minutes after seven, Marcus Paul in the morning, 13 12 69, our telephone number if you would like to have your say. 13 12 69, our telephone number if you would like to have your say on this Wednesday, January 27. It's great to have your company. Morning to you, Scruff. What do you got over there? What are you doing there, my young fella? What's happening? Well, hey? we decided for our social media to do mm. some videos, and I am now recording you while talking to you on the radio. Hang on. You've got a brand new uh, I've got a phone new phone here, and it's got like 10 fo- cameras I don't on understand. It. So you've got, <laughs> if you look at the where you're pointing it toward me, there's three. Yes. Which one do I look at? You look at them all, Marcus. How do I look at them all? So <laughs> I'll be three times as ugly. Yes. Now on our videos. That's it's... wonderful. Thank you, Justin. All right, look, um, in case you didn't know, um, analysis from the Centre for Public in- Integrity shows, surprise, surprise, contributions from property developers to political parties has hit an all-time lie. High. <laughs> Contra contributions from the sector rose to $5.7 million in 2019, taking its total to $54.2 million over the past two decades. And where do most of these property developers spend their money? Well, they shop liberal. Of course they do. Billionaire property magnates, including Westfield's co-founder, Frank Lowy, uh, Chow Chuck Wing of Hong Kong Kingston Investment Company, Harry Trigoboff of Meriton, John Gandal of Gandal Group and Lang Walker of Walker Group are among the top 10 donors over the past decade. Donations from developers are now banned in New South Wales and Queensland but are still legal in Victoria and remain a significant part of federal political funding. 
Well, property developers rely on permits and licences to do their business. Companies with greater access and political favour are more likely to gain competitive advantage. Well, that's not really fair, is it? How is that an even playing field? Anyway, there is a call now for caps on donations, real-time disclosure and a National Integrity Commission to watch over politicians and public servants. You know, like an ICAC with teeth. Not in the current uh, form that the Prime Minister and his flunkies have before Parliament. That has no teeth, no bite, cannot hold politicians accountable for corrupt activities. So, we need a National Integrity Commission to watch over politicians and public service servants. Maybe uh, I would like to see zero donations to political parties from uh, property developers. Personally, that's what I'd like. What do you say? 13, 12, 69. There's no surprise. The vast majority of political donations over the past decade, mostly, were going to the Federal Liberal Party rather than Labor. And that's analysis from the Centre for Public Integrity. Integrity. That's what it should be all about. Genuine talk on the radio. This is Marcus Paul in the morning. If we all agreed all the time, oh, how boring would life be? Absolutely, mate. Uh, isn't yep. it great that we live in a country where we can have different opinions because there are a lot of places around this globe where you can't? You know, it's yeah, uh, that's a part of, of living in Australia, our a democracy. And as, I, as I've said most of the morning... Mate, as I've said, Dave, uh, we won the lottery of life living in this wonderful country. We're bringing you all the news and the views. Marcus, Paul in the morning. Okay, 19 after 7. Give us a call. Let us know what's on your mind. 13 12 69 is the telephone number. Uh, Regarding Craig Kelly, Diana says he was on our station yesterday with Dean Mackett. Well, fair enough. Uh, Dean's... Highly unlikely to criticise Craig Kelly, considering Dean basically spruiks what Craig Kelly spruiks. So let's be honest, really. Hello, Steve. Are you there, mate? How you going, Marcus? All right, thank you, Steve. What's on your mind? I just want to know, how come you don't mention the unions and their donations to Labor? Well, the story uh, that I mentioned before wasn't about uh, the unions, but I can tell you the national branch of the Labor Party in recent years, uh, one figure I have here, they received $11.5 million in funding. Um, So, yep, that's a payment that's obviously... Look, again, I'm not suggesting for a moment that... You know, unions or even other donors shouldn't be able to support their political party of choice. My worry is that we have too much of a close relationship, Steve, between property developers and politicians, of whatever persuasion. Uh, But, I mean, let's be honest, in New South Wales, there's been some issues in the last couple of years. I mean, otherwise, the Independent Commission Against Corruption wouldn't have dragged Daryl Maguire before its hearings and wouldn't have also included the Premier in some of its evidence. I mean, yes, fair fair enough. There's been a problem. There's been a problem. Personally, and I think I said it, uh, but let me repeat, I would much prefer that we actually didn't have any 
political donations by businesses in this country. Why can't we just fund political parties through the electorate? And why can't we keep business and politicians at arm's length from each other? You know, let's, let's be honest, no matter whether you're Labor, Liberal or Calithumbian, if a political donor comes knocking on your door with a nice donation of, I don't know, a few million bucks here, there and everywhere, well, it's highly likely you're going to remember them when it comes time to, I don't know, drafting legislation. And yeah, fair enough. Human... Mate, I, yeah. I missed part of the program. Did you get Bill Short not? Uh, no, we're still chasing Bill. Uh, we've got a call into his office. Just want to have a, a chat with him about his book and, um, you know, basically ask him what his feelings are, whether perhaps he's going to have another crack at the leadership, uh, whether or not uh, he believes that Albo is the man to, to lead the party. Um, otherwise, uh, you know, that they may be uh, well and truly in opposition for many more years to come. But we'll, we'll chew the fat when we get the chance to get him on, mate. Yeah, and also with the Australian Day Awards, have you, have you actually tried to get someone on from that committee that makes the awards announcements? Yeah, we called them a couple of days ago. We asked for uh, for some uh, interviews with the Australians of the Year. Um, we're on a list, apparently. <laughs> very right. very hard for me here at 2SM, mate. Very hard, you know. Uh, uh, no, it's good to see an elitist like Kerry O'Brien, too, that did not take the award. <laughs> So well, no, that's true. Someone else. No, you that's know, he's, true. He's an elitist, isn't he? Well, he is. Uh, Kerry O'Brien's an elite. He's not the only one. Uh, there are others that didn't take the award, but yeah. uh, I mean, Kerry O'Brien is a, a journalist again. Um, you know, I'd much prefer to see somebody not on television yeah, receive receive awards, wouldn't you? I mean, somebody yeah. like the young lady who received. What did you make of the Australian of the Year award? This young yeah, Tasmanian, well, well deserved, mate. Yeah, you know? that's that's terrific. Yeah, you know? and she's pushing a cause that where people don't have a voice, and that's where it probably should go. So I think so. I think so. All right, mate. Yeah. Thanks for the call. You have Cheers. a good day. Thank you. All the best. Bye bye. Thirteen twelve sixty nine. the telephone number if you would like to have you say this morning. Emails, MP in the morning at 2smsupernetwork.com and I've got a few of them coming through here. Scott Murray regarding the Australia Day Awards. G'day Marcus, on the topic of the Australia Day Awards, you can add Michelle Payne to your list besides winning a horse race of all things. What else has she achieved or done for the community? I totally agree with your comments. There must be many more well-deserving Australians in voluntary roles out there to receive such an award rather than choosing politicians or sporting people. Have a great day. Regards, Scott. Look, a lot of, in fairness, a lot of people who aren't in the public eye receive Australia Day honours and awards. Um, and usually it's those with the highest profile to get the bigger awards that appear in the media the following day, and so the cycle goes on. What I'm look, I'm not suggesting for a moment that Michelle Payne, that even you know what's her face, Margaret Court, don't deserve some sort of recognition. Of course they do, but why do they deserve to get the highest honours? What simply because I mean Michelle Payne has overcome adversity. She's done extremely well as a woman in uh, you know the sport of kings, horse racing. But at the end of the day, uh, hasn't she already been acknowledged enough for that? Look, I don't know. It's just an opinion, uh, and that's why I think the uh, the uh, young Grace, who won the Australian of the Year award, the Tasmanian, was the perfect choice. 
Uh, I mean, not many of us, unless you're, I guess, outside of Tasmania or really following the court cases that this young lady was involved in, not many of us would have heard of her. We all have now. And the fact that she'd done extremely well in trying to overturn some legislation that enabled victims of sexual assault to speak out, well, that should be applauded. And these are the kinds of things we should be highlighting on Australia Day. But then the other side of the argument, of course, are those that say, well, Marcus, sport is a big part of our country. You know, sport, whether it's horse racing, whether it's cricket, whether it's rugby league, no matter what it is, sport brings joy and happiness and relief and release to millions of Australians. So why shouldn't people who who do well and excel in sport, why shouldn't they also be acknowledged? But don't we already have, you know, major acknowledgements for sports people? We've got the Cricketer of the Year, you know, the NRL Player of the Year and AFL Player of the Year, the Brownlows and the all those sorts of awards nights. There are more awards nights in this country than, than anywhere else, probably. We award almost everybody. What do you make of it? 13, 12, 69. My point is, I just think the Australia Day Honours list and the way it's all done, that uh, seems to favour the elites and those with a public profile, needs to be overhauled. That's my opinion. It would certainly save a lot of uh, the drama and discussions each and every Australia Day. And that's before we even talk about the Indigenous issue. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Email Marcus and follow the show on social media by going to 2sm.com.au. Okay, 23 minutes away from 8. Give us a call, 13 12 69. That's our telephone number if you want to send an email. MP in the morning at 2smsupernetwork.com. Alex Chelios and the Big Smoke not too far away with a stack of stories to talk about this morning. On Wednesday, January 27, no doubt her take on yesterday's Australia Day Celebrations, commemorations, or commiserations. That's all on the way with Alex. Uh, By the way, big story today in the Sydney Morning Herald. If you want to live a longer life in Sydney, well, the answer apparently is move to the hills. They say it's a shame on our city, vast differences in lifespans across Sydney. I'll let you know where people live the longest right after this morning. Ever in five, Marcus Paul in the morning, 13, 12, 69, our telephone number. Trevor Long joining us with the latest tech news after 8 o'clock, thanks to EFTM. Uh, meantime, in just a moment, uh, we'll go to thebigsmoke.com.au with Alex Shelios. On the email uh, regarding political donations, MP in the morning at 2smsupernetwork.com, Dino says, Many years ago, I used to work in the accounts department of a major multinational tobacco company. Before every federal election, I used to have to draw cheques of tens of thousands of dollars with the name of the payee left blank. My boss would then take them personally. And I found out later that he gave them to his political mates in return for them not increasing the tax excise on tobacco. Really, Dino? Thank you. And this one from Mick Gallagher regarding the Australian of the Year awards. Marcus, me old mate, 
Michelle Payne getting an award on Australia Day. Crikey, June 27th, 2017. We need to remember she was banned as a drugs cheat. What do we do next? Put Robbie Waterhouse up there too for his contribution to the fine cotton industry. Oh, that's very good. And now on Marcus Paul in the Morning, Alex in the Big Smoke. Chalios, good morning to you, Alex. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. Australia Day yesterday, what did you get up to? You stay cool at least. I was cool and I mostly worked, which is very un-Australian. Well, no, I worked as well, so join the club. Aren't we good? good? Look, Alex, uh, before we get into the issues covered in the Big Smoke, Australia Day. It's divisive. There are, you know, we have debates each and every year about whether or not it should be called Invasion Day, move the date, etc. Even the Australian of the Year suggests a date change. What do you say? I don't think it's difficult to change the date, and I think it's probably the right thing to do. What I'm really offended by um, was the lead-up commentary to the day. So by Scott Morrison, by people like Peter Credlin, I think that even with what happened with Margaret Court, I thought it was a disappointing period. Yeah. Um, and I think that we're, we're, our leadership is very tone-deaf right now. Tone-deaf, uh, absolutely. Uh, and what about the awards themselves? I mean, I've been saying uh, in my editorials this morning that I believe the whole award system needs a shake-up. Why do we continually support the elites who have already received a stack of awards in their own fields? I mean, I applaud the... Uh, the naming of the Australian of the Year—that um, was a—that was they got that one right. But a lot of tone deafness, as you've put it, certainly out there. Uh, you know, awards going to people like bloody Rupert Murdoch, Michelle Payne, Margaret Court, and others uh, who probably could. You know, don't really. Ne- it's almost like we've got the elite patting the elite on the back. I don't see how it, ordinary Australians can see. You know how the the, the system of awards and the and why they come about aren't being tainted or influenced by those in power. I think it, there's definitely um, a, a portion of people who probably get the awards because of the relationships they have. Um, but I also do believe that there are some really great Australians who would be considered elite that do deserve those awards. I know quite a couple who've just recently received them in the last few years. And... I would argue that the biggest problem I have um, is giving the awards to people who, are, who might have done something great in their industry but are generally divisive for the country. Um, I think that's where I have the biggest issue. So that would be the people at like Margaret Court, Rupert Murdoch, um, Bernadette Arndt last year. Yeah. Yep. People like that. All right, now let's have a look at the bigsmoke.com.au. In the United States, uh, President Joe Biden has ordered all federal vehicles to become electric. So this is um, an exciting move to, for, for automakers who, you know, focus on electric vehicles. Um, and it's also great news for battery creators. Um, but the federal government owns an enormous fleet of vehicles and they're going to replace with clean electric vehicles made by American workers, creating millions of jobs. But Biden's just announced. So, so this is um, a big move towards, I guess, a, a more green policy and also the creation of more jobs during a difficult time in, in America. So a lot of people are applauding this. Um, but there are obviously going to be you know, issues around shifting to electric vehicles and, and the way batteries are made in America. Um, and also all the Silicon Valley startups that are actually 
trying to come up with more innovative ways to create nanotechnologies. Um, so we're going to see a lot of innovation over the next few months just to, to actually manufacture these cars. All right. What to know about the second news feed that Facebook have just launched? I didn't even notice. What's happening here, Alex? So a lot of people don't know about this. So um, Facebook used to have a news feed that encompassed both notes from your family and friends, um, but then also some news, so articles. They removed the articles away entirely from our news feeds. And a lot of people may not have noticed it, but unless you actively choose to follow a a page that is a news source or, or, you know, any sort of publishing outlet, it wasn't going to turn up in your news feed. So this actually has, they've now created a feed just for news. So it's got no posts from friends and family, and it's a way for you to be able to access news. Facebook have been very funny about news in general. Remember when they had their own top five news trending items and then they removed it and they've been yeah. playing around with this for years. Um, and I think that this is going to be a way for entirely separate from your regular news feed, but a way to access that, that information. Soft bots or software bots are rapidly replacing humans who aren't able to or don't want to come into the office. Come on, what? Yeah. So, um, you know, the robotic process is necessary for a lot of um, companies who aren't able to get staff into the office. So over the last few months, strained resources and what's happening with the pandemic has required routine office tasks such as, you know, just doing course and no queries, processing payroll. You know, there's a whole bunch of complexities around paperwork that advanced bots can actually do, including, including legal documents and contracts. Um, so the concern around this is while the increase of the um, integration of these bots has been really powerful for the companies, what does that look like um, as the pandemic subsides and people start coming back into the office? Will they still have their roles as they are or will this be the shift that a lot of people have feared for many years um, yeah. of, of bots taking over their jobs? I think it's going to be a bit of both. I don't think that um, companies can entirely exist with, with bots, but I do think that there are ways to automate processes and for them to supplement the work of, of the um, the individual. Um, okay. Uh, what about around the office, uh, you know, words being exchanged like, gee, nice bot? <clears throat> yeah, I don't think anyone should get sued for that. All right. It's great to talk to you, Alex. Uh, where do we go to read these and other wonderful stories? TheBigSmoke.com. Have a wonderful day. We'll catch up with you next week. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. Alex Chelios, Marcus Paul in the morning. Give us a call, 13 12 69, if you would like to have your say, 13 12 69. Marcus Paul in the morning. Call 13 12 69. Genuine talk on the radio. This is Marcus Paul in the morning. If we all agreed all the time, oh, how boring would life be? Absolutely, mate. Uh, isn't yep. it great that we live in a country where we can have different opinions because there are a lot of places around this globe where you can't. You know, it's yeah, that's a part of, of living in Australia, our de- a democracy. And as, I, as I've said most of the morning, mates, Dave, as I've said, Dave, uh, we won the lottery of life living in this wonderful country. We're bringing you all the news and the views. Marcus Paul in the morning. Look, parents are being urged to reconsider posting photos of their child's first day of school on social media. News Corp reports experts are concerned the pictures leave children vulnerable to predators because they reveal where the kids are going to be 200 days a year. I never thought of it this way. Predators can also use the information to befriend parents online. So just be a little careful.
parents are being urged to reconsider posting photos of their child's first day of school on social media as the kids get back. Is that something you're going to do? Meanwhile, genetic analysis will allow researchers to better understand koala evolution. With native eucalyptus species and develop stronger treatments to protect against diseases, so experts are saying there are currently no koalas in Western Australia. What? Really? No koalas in WA, but fossil records show that there actually used to be. Hmm. I mean, that's a concern. I I would have. I didn't know we had no koalas in WA. Anyway, genetic analysis will now allow researchers to better understand koala evolution with native eucalyptus species and develop stronger treatments to protect against diseases. Uh, Well, yes, we need to absolutely do that, in particular with the chlamydia problem that our koalas are facing. Okay, uh, look, story today from the Herald in Sydney. Really interesting. Maybe it's not surprising. Some call it a shame on the city. There are vast differences in lifespans across Sydney. Uh, They say that it takes, what, less than 25-odd minutes to drive from a place called Bidwill, which is out near uh, the Nepean, Penrith, St Mary's area, so Bidwill. It takes you less than 25 minutes to drive from Bidwill to Cherrybrook on the M7 motorway. But there's a huge gap between these two Sydney neighbourhoods on the most basic of indicators. Lifespan. In Bidwill's local public health area, the average age of death, or the median age, if you like, was 69 between 2014 and 2018. However, at Cherrybrook, just up the road, you can see the figure sits at 88. So that's some 18 years difference, or 19 years gap, and they say that it's emblematic of disparities in health and economic welfare across relatively small distances in Greater Sydney. Makes sense to me. The average age at death for the whole of Greater Sydney is 81. However, virtually all suburbs with a median death age of 86 to 88. The highest band are in the wealthy areas to the city's north and east. Three quarters of the districts but the lowest longevity... The median death age of 69 to 72 were in less wealthy parts of western and southwestern Sydney. Does it make sense? Well, I guess it does at first glance, but I guess the bigger question is why? Why are people in Bidwell and those areas living far less longer than those in the hills? I mean, do we all need to move to the hills? (laughs) up around Cherrybrook, Dural, Galston, those sorts of areas to live a, a longer life in Sydney? And why is it that those in areas like Bidwell, Mount Druitt, St Mary's, are living less longer lives than others? Is it as easy as just looking at the socioeconomic uh, disparities between these suburbs? Is it that there's more heavy industry in these areas? that leads to, you know, a higher death rate from cancer and other illnesses. Anyway, it's worth thinking about, and there's a good story today in the Sydney Morning Herald on at 13 12 69, the number if you want to... Boy, the number of confirmed COVID-19 cases around the world has now passed 100 million 
As countries race to vaccinate their populations against the deadly virus, health experts say the true count could be much higher due to different countries' varied testing capabilities and reporting protocols. It's a real concern. More than 2.14 million deaths from the virus have been recorded across the world since the pandemic began, although the true toll, according to experts, is likely far worse. Meantime, get set to be told about the vaccine here in Australia, a $24 million advertising campaign encouraging Australians to get a COVID-19 jab has begun its rollout today. Federal Health Minister Greg Hunt said the campaign would be rolled out across traditional and social media and will get ev- uh, I'll start that again and will give everyone all the information they need about the uh, the safety, the availability of the vaccines, uh, the efficacy of it as well. I mean there are some concerns this morning elderly uh, people Uh, The Therapeutic Goods Administration is assessing all of the evidence on how well the Oxford University AstraZeneca vaccine works in the elderly. As medical researchers expressed concerns that older people were not included in clinical trials in large enough numbers. Uh, But Australian health officials say they are confident both the AstraZeneca and Pfizer vaccines, they're the vaccines of choice, They say they will be effective against new variants of COVID-19 that have swept through the UK, South Africa and Brazil. So there we go. So there was a bit of a concern about the efficacy of the vaccine in those over 65, but it would appear those concerns have been allayed by the federal government this morning. What are your concerns about the virus uh, vaccines, the Pfizer and AstraZeneca vaccines? Will you be getting them? Will you not be getting them? 13 12 69, the telephone number, if you want to have your say on that. Emails, MP in the morning at 2SM, supernetwork.com. We'll go to the news next, 8 o'clock in Sydney, six, uh, 7 o'clock, of course, in Queensland. Marcus Paul in the morning. Email Marcus and follow the show on social media by going to 2SM.com.au. OK, we'll talk tech very soon on this Wednesday, January 27, with Trevor Long, thanks to EFTM. Uh, the latest in tech gadgetry is on the way with Trev. And I'm also going to catch up with Professor John Glover, uh, who's going to have a chat with us about this huge divide across Sydney. Uh, they claim that it's been driven by layers of socioeconomic disadvantage which contribute to much poorer health outcomes in some neighbourhoods. I mean, I mentioned it earlier, there's a 19-year disparity between uh, how long you can expect to live in places like Bidwell, St Mary's, as opposed to the Hills area, if you, you know, we're talking about places like Cherrybrook and Dural and Galston. So we'll chat to Professor John Glover, the Director of Public Health Information Development Unit, PHIDU. He'll be on the program very soon. Bill Shorten, uh, hoping to catch up with Bill over either today on the Laws Program or certainly before the end of the week. Uh, in relation to his new book. Uh, Bill's been hamming it up on the television screens of late. I don't think his jokes are brilliant, but I like this one. There's an Englishman, an American and an Aussie trapped on a desert island. They've been there for a long time. Then one night there's a terrible storm and uh, Aladdin's lamp washes up the next morning and they see the lamp and they polish it up and unplug it and out comes the genie and it says to the American, the Englishman and the Aussie, I'd, you can have one wish. And after years, the Americans said, I just want to go home. And then, blink, he's gone. 
An Englishman says, I want to go home and I want to have a great English meal. Great. Gone. And the Aussie says, oh, geez, I miss them. Can I have my friends back? <laughs> oh, there he is. Uh, Bill Shorten, 131269, if you would like to have your say. Well, in parks and community halls across New South Wales, the newest Australians were proudly swearing allegiance in citizenship ceremonies, all smiles as they officially joined the Haven Nation that had taken them in from across the unsettled globe. (laughs) Good stuff. I really enjoyed seeing a number of smiling faces yesterday. People who'd received their citizenship papers... Uh, some coming from war-torn areas uh, from the Middle East, others from places like India. Uh, yesterday, at a citizenship ceremony in Pennant Hills at the community centre, uh, there was a, a young man with a six-month-old daughter in his arms. And his daughter was the first Australian in his family. And he was damn proud of it, too. And then there was another young or youngish woman, the age of 34, a software engineer who'd quit their job in India, saying it had been a bit of a terrifying moment, but is now working at a major bank with a home surrounded by gum trees in Barara Heights. And this new Australian said they're never looking back. In Hornsby, the Shire Mayor, Philip Ruddock, led dozens of new Australians through the ceremony, including their pledge. Filipino Faley Rivago said she became emotional in yesterday's ceremony as her fiancé and cousin watched on. Miss Rivago came to Australia in 2013 to advance her nursing career and now works as a registered nurse in a Sydney hospital. She said it was a really hard decision to make to leave my country and family in the Philippines, but I'm falling in love with this country. It's safe for a future plan. A haven nation among a less safe world. Isn't that well put? Isn't that well put by a brand new Australian? Of course, yesterday brought out the nutters as well. Mate, this is the most redneck radio station that's going on. This You can't talk to it. You can't get a decent word across the airways if you don't agree with some of your fellow radio announcers. What are they trying to do? Still uh, listeners from TGB? Like, I want to talk about the Margaret uh, Court fiasco. Oh, three cheers for Margaret Court. She's a dead set legend. Uh, she's got the goers and she's able to stand up and, against these rednecks. If you want to look at what's going on, Trumpy, they stole the election off him. There's a thing called Rebel News, and it's all just starting to come out. Also, the Trumpet.com talks about uh, how they stole the election. <laughs> we are so blinded out here in the West with this cock cockly doodle dude nonsense these guys keep putting down on us, mate. We're just so stupid here in the West. We, you wouldn't feed half of us. We're all walking around with a stupid mask on. All it is is influenza A and B. I've had a gut full of this radio station. Cock cockly doodle dude, mate. All uh, cockly doodle dude. All the news and your views. Marcus Paul in the morning. I nearly drove off the road when I heard that moron call through last night. Uh, I think David Gubbay was on air. Poor David didn't know what was going on. <laughs> That's that real clown of a bloke that always rings and does a, a stupid cockly doodly do. I think the bloke uh, is absolutely... Uh, maybe a couple of sh- sheep short in the paddock upstairs. You'd have to be, wouldn't you? 
You'd have to be. I feel dumber just playing that little bit. But God, it's funny. Look, if you heard my breakfast program yesterday, you would have heard me speak to Labor MP Andrew Lee about the federal government's JobKeeper scheme. Public companies that received the payments but ended up seeing a surge in sales despite the pandemic are still being urged to repay the government their JobKeeper payments. Thankfully, and to their credit, major Australian companies, including Super Retail Group and the local arms of Toyota and Coca-Cola, have committed to handing back the cash, and that is good for their public image. But business experts say the goodwill of public companies is scarce. Dean Parch, director of corporate governance firm Ownership Matters, says it's unlikely the government will see that money again. And I can't imagine many companies will be lining up to hand back free money. It's hard enough to get money back from an individual, so good luck convincing a board of directors that can only see, I don't know, dollar signs. We'll see what happens. He said it'll take all Australians, us, your children and your grandchildren, 30 years to pay back the $90 million scheme. There are concessions, though, that public companies made up only 3% of the payments, but 3% of roughly $90 billion is still a hell of a lot of money. It's around $2.7 billion. The Treasury perhaps should have foreshadowed this could have happened when they came up with the scheme. The payments should have been handed out on the condition that if you do end up making a substantial profit during COVID-19, you simply hand back the welfare payments. The only thing we can do now is hope. And hope. It's a very... Well, yeah, hope. That these companies have the compassion to give the money back to the country for the greater good and for the good of their own public image. Will it happen? I'm not sure. to the open line very quickly. Cole, are you there, mate? Yeah, mate. Hello, Cole. What's on your mind? Mate, I'm, I'm getting a bit a jack of this bloody invasion day stuff there. Like my ancestors come right back to the first fleet. And yesterday, some Aboriginal said to me, happy invasion day. And I just said, mate, it's not a crap. I said there was probably 12, 1,400 people on the whole fleet. I said two-thirds of them were convicts, all in chains. And I said, if there was ever an invasion day, there would have been all not in change. They would have been wearing red coats shooting. I said, not invasion day. So I'm just, I'm just jack of their bullshit. If you know what I mean. All right. Well, a lot of people are, uh, and others aren't, uh, and that's what makes this country so great. We can have varying opinions on these issues. It's an important issue. Should we change the date? Well, the Australian of the Year believes so, as do many others. What do you say? Thirteen, twelve, sixty-nine, or like my caller there who put it probably in the term that we shouldn't use at breakfast, but he reckons it's BS and he's a bit over all of the conversation around it. Are you? Give me a call, 13 12 69. Emails, MP in the morning at 2smsupernetwork.com at a quarter past eight. OK, I mentioned this story just a, a moment or two ago and we put a link up on our social media, hashtag Marcus Paul in the morning if you want to follow us there. But there's a big discrepancy in Sydney between how long you can expect to live. Some new research, which has been published today in the Sydney Morning Herald, shows very clearly what's going on. 
It's a shame on our city. Vast differences in lifespans across Sydney. It takes you, what, less than half an hour to drive from Bidwell to Cherrybrook on the M7, but there's a 19-year gap between, well, the most basic of indicators, lifespan. In Bidwell, the median age of death is 69. However, just around the road at Cherrybrook, it sits at 88. What is going on? What is causing this big year age gap? Well, is it emblematic of disparities in health and economic welfare across relatively small distances in Greater Sydney? Well, I tend to think it is. Let's talk with John Glover about this this morning. Uh, John, good morning to you. How are you? Well, thanks, Marcus. Thank you very much for your time. Um, Look, there's probably not a great deal of surprise that there are some discrepancies in how long you can expect to live in maybe less industrial uh, suburbs of of Sydney, but 19 years is a big time between an area that takes you literally 25 minutes on a motorway to get to. Yes, it it is true, and you're you're exactly right when you said, you know, health and economic welfare issues are are huge. Um, It's not a surprise that there are differences, but when we see it in the number of actual years, the difference, it, it really strikes and shows the, the huge division between those two parts of the city and others. And I think in the article it does also look at the potential years of life lost, which is a, a useful measure because mm. a lot of the deaths over 75, for instance, are, we, we, people got to 75 deaths over that, heart disease and so on. But mm. we look at this years of life lost from deaths before 75 years of age. Yep. And things like suicide and road traffic accidents come in. And that's where uh, those two places you mentioned, um, Bidwell is 80%, 85% above the national average for numbers of years of life lost before deaths at 75. No, I and know. Yeah. about 50% below. So, you know, that, that, that just shows you that it's not just the deaths. It, it's all the, the young people dying and, and, and early death, yeah. Well, yeah, it's very concerning. I know the both areas quite well. Um, Cherrybrook, I know. I have family and friends in that neck of the woods in the hills. Bidwell, not far from where I grew up, and I had friends. I, In fact, one of my very good friends from my high school years ended up being a, a principal at Bidwell High School. Uh, and, and, and quite clearly, in conversations with her, I learned about the socioeconomic disadvantages in that area. There's a high proportion of Indigenous Australians, Aboriginals. There's also a high proportion in that area of Sydney of Pacific Islanders uh, and and first, uh, well, new settlers here to Australia who are, well, in general, of a non-European background. Does this have a lot to do with it? Sure. Yeah, you're right. With the um, uh, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders, it's just over 10% in in the area with Bedwell and surrounds, and it's as against 0.3% in in Cherrybrook, and again with the the Islanders and, and other more recent arrivals, and so yeah. it's partly to do with the way we put our um, housing support housing for people where people can afford to live, um, which also leads to you know job opportunities, education opportunities um, in in cities around the world where there's 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 better spread within suburbs in terms of the mix of the social mix of people. It, it's not so bad. You get a, a better opportunities for jobs and going to school and a, and a better understanding of what finishing school means for you in terms of your life. 
But um, yeah. there's a lot of pressures on people and a lot of stresses. And unfortunately, this gap has, has got wider since the uh, late 80s when we first looked at these numbers. Things were improving until the early 90s, mid-90s. But since the mid-90s, um, the, the gap has got wider, and that's that's really unfortunate in, in a country like Australia. Well, it is, and in my opinion, it, it shows a lack of, uh, well, interest in governments, both state and federal, uh, to invest in social housing. We've been told uh, you know, on a number of occasions that there, there may be a salt and pepper approach, if you like, to building uh, new social housing across Sydney. But let's be honest, let's be frank, um, you're highly unlikely to see new public or social housing pop up in the north or the eastern suburbs of Sydney. Uh, I mean, we have a, a median uh, death rates, if you like, or death age at death for Greater Sydney 81. Uh, we're talking about 69 out at places like Bidwell. I mean, the, the it makes sense. The highest, those who live the longest live in wealthy areas to the city's north and the east of where you will find, really, a very small amount of social public housing. Yeah, and, and that, that you know, we're short of social housing everywhere and certainly not the mix that, that would, would make it much better for people who, who would then live in a different environment, nicer environment, closer to the city, to the, to the major facilities that we all need, need to, to use in health and education and so on. Yeah, it, it's a long, ongoing problem that Australia hasn't tackled well, uh, federal, state, uh, over many, many years, and that's why this gap is widened, because we aren't tackling and, and aren't looking at it well. One thing I do notice, though, and recently I took a, uh, a trip on a train out to Nepean Hospital at Penrith, and when the uh, the train's going through areas around Seven Hills through to places like Mount Druitt, you can see uh, that there's been an effort to improve housing along the rail corridor. And, and the thing is, too, a lot of these areas like Mount Druitt and the areas around there, people who own their properties or have lived uh, and perhaps uh, paid it off over a number of years, with changes to planning laws, I mean, they are potentially sitting on gold mines. I don't know why the government doesn't buy up more of this land and put in some newer, better social or public housing. Yeah, and uh, look, when we talk about the areas, you know, there, there, there's, a, there's a range within the area, there's a range within the street, there's many people who have become very successful in these areas and, and have made a really good life for themselves. But for, for many, it's been much more of a struggle. And th there, there are important things that, that, that can be done because some of the facilities and some of the councils are trying, some of the state governments are trying, but it just seems that we haven't got a wholehearted big plan about how to how to approach this we know education is is, is a big thing but yeah. housing is there in terms of the quality of the housing um, so that it's not freezing cold at night in the in the winter and so on um, and and the, and the local environment with parks and things so there's so many things involved and we know all of this we've known it for years and, and you're talking about having looked out of the train and you're seeing what you're seeing as well we know all of this we, we yeah. don't bring it together well well, the problem as well is that if we don't do something about it, these ghettos in some of these suburbs, and I'm, I'm really sorry to use that term, but they are, these ghettos in places like Bidwell uh, and areas surrounding there, they'll only continue to get worse. And as your research quite clearly shows, we'll only, uh, you know, people will start dying at even younger ages unless we address the problem. 
Yeah, yeah, it is. And and there's a lack of dignity and a lack of hope in, for many people in when they see the lifestyle that, that they're likely to face. It, it, it's no wonder that, 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 that we get the road accidents, the suicides and the other things that, that lead to these shorter lifespans. All right, it's good to talk to you on this, John. We'll, uh, we'll stay in touch with you and your work and, and thank you for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for your questions and comments. Thank you. Bye. All right, there he is, Professor John Glover, the Director of the Public Health Information Development Unit. That story uh, and the links and also a really good graphic uh, is from the, the Herald today is up on our socials if you want to have a look at it and maybe leave some comments. I mean, all, although disturbing, the stats on median age of death hide as much as they reveal because they don't tell us about the lifelong burden of poor health, stress and disability, which is endured by many out in these suburbs. There is a huge divide across Sydney. It's been driven by layers of socio-economic disadvantage, which contributes to poorer health outcomes in some of these neighbourhoods. They are difficult neighbourhoods in Sydney. I've got a number of mates who have gone through the police and been on the job, who've been out to horrific scenes of violence, domestic abuse, homicides in these areas that I'm talking about of socio-economic disadvantage. Some of the areas resemble slums. Sometimes you feel desperately sorry for these people. What is the way out of it? Well, perhaps the way out of it is to rejig the way we do social housing in Sydney. I know people that perhaps are listening on the North Shore and the eastern suburbs along the northern beaches won't agree with this, but we do need a a better salt and pepper approach, if you like, of social and public housing in New South Wales. Just dropping everybody in the same spot is only going to lead to further disaster socially. All right, 131269. George, good morning. How are you, George? Yeah, Marcus, um, I know you're not going to agree with my comments, but, mate, you mean to tell me that if you grab, say, a family from Goodwill, yep. okay, that, that are renowned for use, abusing alcohol no, and drugs... No, 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 no. Sorry, you don't speak in generals, uh, in general terms. Uh, I'm, I'm just... Because I'm just, I, I grew up in Minto, yep. okay? Now, Minto was no, no better than Bidwell, Okay, it was a housing commission area, and and of course there was a high high uh, rate of uh, unemployment. Yeah. But it was on my on my onus to get up and do something about it, and I did. Well, you did. Up, so what? So, okay. Yes. So, but so all I'm saying is, it's yeah. up to each individual to do what they can to better their life. Yeah, but shouldn't we you know, be giving more people an opportunity to do that? Uh, I mean, look, I, I applaud and I understand. Exa- I know exactly what you're saying, George. Yes, uh, of course there are people who use and abuse drugs and alcohol in lower socioeconomic areas like Bidwell or Minto. You've pulled yourself out of it. Shouldn't we be encouraging others to do the same? And shouldn't we give them opportunities to do that in other parts of Sydney? Hang on a second, Mark, Marcus. I had the, I've got the exact same opportunity. I had the exact same opportunities as the guys that grew up in, say, for example, St Andrews, which was you know a private estate with you know like a yeah not a wealthy wealthy area but a, 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 a much more wealthy area. So 
every Australian has the exact same opportunity as any other Australian. It's just up to the individual to take the initiative and do something about it. All right, well, mate, I'm glad that you have, George, and I think we've opened up a can of worms here, and I want to talk about it. And I thank you for your candour, and I thank you for your call, mate. Have a great day. New sport and weather next. If you want to continue this conversation, I think it's a very important one for my listeners on 2SM Sydney. 13 12 69 is the number. Australia's only contemporary news talk radio program. All the news and your views. Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, we're off to Canberra very soon with Christina in the capital, 25 to 9, 28 to Queensland. In the meantime, if you want to have your say, 13 12 69 is the telephone number. And good morning, how are you? Good morning, Marcus. Thank you. I really want to thank you to bringing to the public the disgusting behaviour of the government with all this overcrowding of our home. Before, just on Christmas Eve, I received a letter from my council yeah. to tell me that my street is zoned for R4, which is units. Now, I have a lovely home. I have a big block of land, or not big, but 800 or 900 square metres. And I bought it in the early 60s to enjoy it. I've raised four children. And, um, and I just, what they're doing, and I've had many letters to Rob Stokes. He doesn't seem to know what's going on at times. I was complaining about um, council buying uh, homes over at Villawood. One yeah. of my friends has just sold a home to them for a million dollars, and it's a fibro, little fibro place. Uh, they're buying it to put a park in there. They couldn't, they couldn't care less of the people in that street. It's a cut-off street. At least they're putting a park in there rather yes, than but, a block of units, though. <laughs> yeah, but, Marcus, they put a 10-room um, boarding house and that's affected the people in this street. You have to know the street. It's a very cut, it's a cut-off street mm. and it's only about 12 homes in it, so they're going to put this massive park. Now, I've got friends in that street that have just built a home, one selling to the government, uh, to the council for yeah. the park and the other man he's from Afghanistan got a huge family and built a beautiful home and he's got all his family living with it. there's probably about 10 or 15 people in this home but you know he's a beautiful man he came to Australia to have some peace yep. and uh, I can say that he's my friend and he's so upset and now they get a letter to say we're going to put a massive park we're going to buy i think six maybe seven homes as a couple of housing commission and these poor people have been in these housing commissions for 35 years and now they get a letter oh we're going to put a park here we need your house uh we're going to move you now these people, and one of them I'm going to fight with her, because, no, fight for her, yeah, yeah. because she doesn't want to go. And she was put out of a unit in Villawood many, many years ago. The wonderful government pulled the block of units down, so they gave her a house. I think she's got children, and, uh, you know, she loves where she lives, but, you know, this 10-room this boarding house has caused her a lot of problems because sure. of the young... A lot of young people live there and they make a noise and so on and so forth. So thank you, Marcus. All right. Look, it's always going to be a difficult situation, planning laws. But look, uh, for the people who are displaced from public housing, uh, you've got to hope that they are put in at least accommodation better than what they're leaving. Uh, look, I think that there's a, a lot of public housing stock in New South Wales that needs upgrading. Absolutely. 
And I understand from Anne's point of view how difficult it can be for those who've lived in public housing for a number of years, brought up families, only to be told today by the government, no, sorry, uh, we're going to bulldoze this old stock and either put up a park or put up new units, better quality, uh, modern public housing. Uh, There are those who would argue, well, I'm sorry, if you're living in public housing, you have to live where the government tells you to. And to some extent, that's true. But it doesn't take into account the the concerns or the rights or the feelings of those who've lived in those areas. And we need to at least acknowledge, like Anne does, and accept that there are two sides to the story and we can't be, uh, you know, it's not just black and white. It's not, I mean, it's very easy at the stroke of a pen for Rob Stokes or anybody, a bureaucrat or anybody within the government to say, well, look, here's where this public housing was. It's on a block of land out in Western Sydney. We can get probably $20 million for the block of land. We'll sell it off to a developer. They'll put up a big, you know, skyscraper like you see popping up in Liverpool and, and Hurstville and Penrith and all of those areas now in Western Sydney that are going up, up and up, I can understand developers jumping on it, seeing dollar signs. The problem is, though, once these new developments go up, the government makes sweet coin of it with all of the the juicy amount of money that's paid by the developer, first and foremost for the block of land, and then when the units are built, you've got stamp duty and all the rest of it. Yes, the argument is it creates jobs, which is fine. It keeps the construction industry going, which is okay. And I don't even have really a problem with these developments going up, but they need to be interspersed with affordable social public housing. If you are going to continually buy up public housing lots bulldoze them, old stock, fair enough, it needs an upgrade, but you need to be replacing it. And somebody who's lived in public housing in this area for a number of years, brought up a family, etc., has built their community connections, of course they don't want to leave. Why would you want to leave? You've been in that area for however long. These people should be given the opportunity by the government, as a part of the contract, to then have at least... I don't know, a salt and pepper approach, maybe two or three of the new apartments being built in this massive development be available for those in public housing. Good public housing tenants, of course, before everybody jumps up and down saying, oh, I don't want want houses living in my apartment block. Well, I'm sorry, not everybody that lives in public housing is either on the doll, on the grog, or on drugs. The, a very a small minority of them. And granted, of course, some people are. But at the end of the day, most people, elderly people, those who have lived in public housing, brought up children, help populate our country, they should also be, in my mind, taken care of when governments are making a fortune and developers are making a fortune off the flogging off of public assets, including old social housing stock. Needs to be a little fairer. Alrighty, 13, 12, 69, if you would like to have you say... Now on Marcus Paul in the Morning. I have always believed in miracles. The latest from the capital with Christina Rosengren. Alright, here we are. Christina, good morning, how are you? 
Well, thank you, Marcus. How are you? Yeah, good. The federal government's launching a new advertising campaign to keep Australians informed about COVID-19 vaccinations. Yes, so the government's pouring $24 million into this new campaign. It will be rolled out today across uh, TV, print, radio, along with social and digital media. And it aims to keep Australians informed about the COVID-19 vaccines, including its safety and efficacy, and also to raise awareness about the vaccine candidates and to motivate or remind us to take it. Uh, So the campaign will provide information about when and how to get the jab and will also be the head of the Therapeutic Goods Administration, the adjunct Professor John Skerritt, who will assure that the vaccines will only be approved when there's enough evidence that they, they work and that they're safe. And this, of course, comes after the TGA announced its approval of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, so that'll be the first one to be rolled out across the country. And then their aged care and disability residents and staff will be among the first to be vaccinated, along with quarantine and border workers, as long as uh, health, as well as uh, frontline healthcare staff. And the government says that all Australians who want to receive the vaccine will be able to do so by October. But the vaccine schedule will likely start next month when we get the first doses of, of Pfizer. All right, the trans-Tasman bubble between Australia and New Zealand could be in doubt. Yes, so on Monday you may have heard that Australia decided to pause quarantine-free travel from New Zealand for at least three days, and that was in response to the one recorded case of a highly transmissible strain of COVID-19 in New Zealand. So a 56-year-old woman uh, recently returned from Europe, uh, tested positive for the South African variant of COVID-19 after she was released from isolation in Auckland. So in response to that, Australia decided to end the so-called green zone travel arrangement temporarily. So that allows New Zealanders to fly here without quarantining. And New Zealanders who arrived from the 14th of January have been told to get tested and isolate while they await their results. But New Zealand's Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, she's called this quarantine decision a bit disappointing. She spoke to Prime Minister Scott Morrison on Monday night. And in that phone call, she says she expressed that if a trans-Tasman travel bubble were established, there needs to be confidence that these kinds of border closures won't happen with very short notice over similar kinds of incidents. And she also points out that there's a bit of a logistical challenge if every state of Australia has a sort of different approach to handling outbreaks uh, when New Zealand has a whole... Uh, as a whole has well, the same that's approach. right. New Zealand have done it properly. As far as I'm concerned, New Zealand haven't had rogue states going their own and premiers or, you know, people in charge of different jurisdictions going at each other like morons. I mean, that's been the biggest problem here in Australia. Millions of yes, Australians exactly. have been inconvenienced by different state and territory governments making the rules up and moving the goalposts as they went along. And at least in New Zealand, they've had a consistent whole-of-nation approach to how they deal with the pandemic. It's been a mishmash yes. uh, here in Australia, but look, to their credit, we've still done very well. I mean, you see over in America and other places, uh, you know, we've got... Uh, millions of people now dying from COVID-19, over 100,000 alone in the UK. Uh, it's a big concern. This yeah. uh, veteran Liberal MP uh, has called on the Morrison government to embrace the Uluru Statement in its entirety. Who's this MP and what's this about? Yes, so federal uh, backbencher Russell Broadbent has made this call. So the Uluru Statement from the Heart, that's the document produced by Indigenous leaders in 2017. And uh, one of the reforms that that document sets out uh, is calling for a constitutionally enshrined Indigenous voice to Parliament. That's something the government uh, has ruled out. It's 
looking at legislating a voice, not uh, not putting it in the constitution. And yeah. one of the reasons for that, uh, well, the Indigenous Australians Minister Ken White argues is because changing the uh, constitution is a bit of a difficult process. So he thinks it's better to legislate it. But of course, Indigenous leaders uh, want it to be enshrined in the constitution. So Mr Broadbent, uh, he's come out now to say that... Um, First Nations people should no longer be ignored, and he's called on the on the government to sort of embrace the entirety of this document. And he says that the only way for Australia to truly reconcile its past with Indigenous Australians is to do so. I have uh, a so to basically, accept the uh, statement in its entirety. So, yeah. um, of course, these comments follow Australia Day. Yesterday, we've, there's a bit of a debate or an ongoing debate and increasing debate about uh, whether Australia's you know, acknowledging its its past and history, and of course, there's there's comments by uh, the PM about uh, the first fleet and and whether or not it was a flash day for the people in those yeah. vessels either. So, um, I think increasingly every year we're we are definitely having this uh, debate around uh, not only Australia Day but also uh, how uh, we you know Indigenous Australians and non-Indigenous Australians relate to one another. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and like I said, I, I, this is just giving me a headache now. We, we keep going around and around in the same circles. There are so many days set aside for Indigenous Australians to recognise them. Uh, when will it all stop? If we change the date, will that bring a stop to it all? Probably not. Uh, if we change the constitution, will that bring a stop to it? Probably not. Uh, there are people who have made a career, I have to say, unfortunately, of being uh, antagonists. They are professional antagonists. Now, there is no doubt whatsoever that we need to, in some way, shape or form, recognise the injustices that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders have faced uh, since settlement. Absolutely. Do we call it Invasion Day? No, we don't. And that's too divisive. I don't know, Christina, I'm glad I'm not the one making the decisions, but I think Australians overall have had a bit of a gutful of this debate each and every year. I think if you want the divisiveness to end, I think uh, the best way forward is for us to listen to each other, and that means both sides. Very true, very true, and uh, yes, you're absolutely right. Maybe there needs to be more coverage of things like NAIDOC Week and all of the days that are set aside for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander recognition in the mainstream media. That would probably help. I mean, let's be honest, if you asked every single, you know, if you got a, a bunch of 10 Australians and asked them when NAIDOC Week was or what the bunch of days recognising Indigenous Australians were, Christina, I reckon probably half of them would struggle to tell you anything. Yes, well, um, I think uh, as, as long as we sort of... Uh, what I think concerns me the most is uh, not just not dismissing uh, outright when Indigenous Australians or other people who perhaps sympathise with uh, with um, changing the date or those kinds of issues to not just simply dismiss what they're saying is uh, and being antagonising or you know being divisive, but actually listening and then on both sides. So yeah. I, you know it is a very divisive day. But if you if you say that you want to change the divisiveness, then that the issue is to listen to both sides. Very true. All right, Christina, thank you so much. Uh, we'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you, Christina in the capital. Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, David, what do you got for me? Two fleas were dashing across the top of a soup packet. <laughs> Two fleas dashing across the top of a soup packet and... Why are we going so fast, asked one. Can't you read, said the other. It says, tear along the dotted line. Uh, on the email, MP in the morning at 2SM, supernetwork.com. Uh, Ray. <laughs> Ray says, Marcus, 
Matey, I'm afraid you've just shot yourself in the foot again. George has just put it to you straight. Get a job, work hard, stay out of trouble, and you will be a success. I commend you for your concern for the battler. Maybe you should move to Bidwell and get yourself elected to Parliament. You could be more effective in that role. Kind regards. Ray. Well, Ray, I can't help you, mate. If you can't see that those that live in these suburbs, including Bidwell and others, don't have less opportunity uh, to, as you say, get a job, work hard and stay out of trouble than those do. I don't know where you're from, Ray, um, but you do sound a little bit elitist. Of course, of course people can make a success of themselves. Um, Mate, I grew up in a fairly... Rough area myself. Uh, I mean, Warrington. Warrington, oh, well, I was in Warrington County, but, you know, it was one of the lowest socioeconomic areas in Sydney, uh, Ray. So I know what I'm talking about, and I know the area of Bidwell. I know it very well, and I know how difficult it is for people to get by and to, you know, there's very little opportunity out there. Uh, there is next to no jobs. There's no investment in the local area. It's a ghetto that's been left to basically rot by governments because they put it in the too hard basket. Again, it's very easy to say, get a job, work hard, stay out of trouble and you will be a success. Yes, but the problem is for a lot of people that live in these lower socioeconomic areas like Bidwell and those areas, it's difficult because there aren't as adequate opportunities available as are in other areas of Sydney. There is a major gap and again, if you can't see that, Ray, I can't help you. Alrighty, 13 12 69, the telephone number. If you would like to have your say, uh, we're here till midday today, filling in for John Laws. Laws, he's back for his 68th year of broadcasting. Uh, yes, I know I got it wrong last week. I think I think I said the 70th. But anyway, the 68th year of broadcasting for Laws. He, he's back next Monday, so a couple more days to put up with us. <laughs> Alrighty, 13 12 69 to have you say. If you want to send us a text, 0458 049 209 and emails, MP in the morning at 2smsupernetwork.com. We'll pick up a swag of stations and go around the country after 9 o'clock, 8 o'clock Queensland time for the John Laws Morning Show. Marcus Paul in the morning. Alright, good morning. Great to have your company. It is the day after Australia Day. It's Wednesday and it is January 27. The John Laws Morning Show around Australia. Lawsy, the king of talkback, back for his 68th year of broadcasting. Can you believe it? Lawsy is back on Monday, next Monday being February the 1st. In the meantime, all the news and your views, 13 12 69 is our telephone number if you would like to have you say this morning on any of the issues, any of the day's major stories. Maybe you'd like to share an Australia Day experience with everyone listening. Whatever it is, we'd love to hear from you. 13 12 69. If you want to send a text number, the Fortress text line is open. Lawsy's text 0458 049 209. And, of course, you can always send an email to the program. It'll come directly through to me, MP in the morning at 2smsupernetwork.com.
Okay, it is Wednesday, January 2017, and a man and a woman walking a dog have been hit and killed by a stolen four-wheel drive in Brisbane. It is a story that has shocked Australia. They were struck by the vehicle just 10 minutes after the driver was involved in a nasty road rage incident. There are reports the woman who was killed was also pregnant. Now, this 17-year-old driver was arrested a short time later, even though he did try and do the bolt. He was tackled by a nearby resident, thank goodness, this good Samaritan, led police to arrest this bloke, and he'll have a lot of explaining to do. That's why we often go hard on young people who steal cars, go on joyrides, do ridiculous things on our roads like burnouts and all the rest of it. Because these are the tragic consequences of people at a young age driving when they shouldn't be. I mean, let alone the people who've been killed, but this 17-year-old bloke has effectively ruined his life and the lives of his family as well, his nearest and dearest. Imagine being his parents, for goodness sake. It's just an awful, awful story. Our thoughts and, of course, our condolences go with those who have been killed. The driver has been charged, but as I say, his life now will be effectively ruined. Meanwhile, in Sydney, in the northwest of the city, police are investigating a carjacking incident. A bloke was sitting in his car at Seven Hills at three o'clock yesterday afternoon, broad daylight on Australia Day, when he was approached by another man. The bloke threatened him with a knife and then punched him in the face repeatedly. What's going on out there? The driver was dragged out of the vehicle. The other man drove off in his red BMW convertible. Police are on the hunt for this bloke. More road rage, more violence on our streets. Look, also making news, and Australia has locked New Zealand out of the country for 72 hours after a single COVID-19 case was identified across the Tasman. Why? I don't get it. I really don't get it. These snap decisions made by politicians have dramatic economic effects and personal effects for those who might have been travelling across the ditch. The Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, says she's now considering forming trans-Tasman travel bubbles with individual Australian states. See, New Zealand, in my opinion, have done it the right way. They haven't had... They've had a, a national approach to borders... Unlike here in Australia, where we've had each individual state or territory make up their own minds. Look, granted, we've done a good job in controlling COVID-19. Of course we have on on the world stage, as have New Zealand. But my concern has always been the snap decisions by either the Queensland, Victorian or New South Wales governments, they're the three most popular states, for these governments just decide, right, that's it, no one can travel without exemptions, passes, quarantine, isolation, etc. I understand why it's being done, but, I mean, isn't it high time now with the vaccine just around the corner that we here in Australia have a national approach? Rather than, rather than allowing states and territories just to make up their own minds. Anyway, uh, Jacinda Ardern says uh, many new arrangements 
would replace a nationwide agreement and would potentially allow for continued travel and tourism while health authorities deal with outbreaks. Common sense, I think, from the New Zealand PM. Look, globally, it's not good. More than 100 million people have contracted coronavirus. America is still the worst hit, with more than 25 million cases and 420,000 deaths, followed by India and Brazil. Yesterday, the United Kingdom hit a grim milestone with more than 100,000 deaths since the beginning of the pandemic. And it's widely acknowledged the true number of cases and deaths is likely to be far higher than the data shows. And we even had a case where a very glum and grim-faced Prime Minister from the United Kingdom ended up apologising to his nation. It's just awful. It really, really is awful. Now, New South Wales, we're into our ninth day of double digits, like zeros, donut days if you like. Similar conditions in other states and territories, that's why I think it's high time we reopen all borders for domestic travel and domestic tourism. And, of course, the AstraZeneca and the other um, Pfizer vaccines are available very soon to be rolled out around Australia. The government today embarking on a $50-plus million advertising blitz, which will let us know exactly where and how we go about getting these vaccines. You'll start hearing and seeing the advertisements from today. Meanwhile, iconic supermarket brands are back in Australian hands. Bega Cheese has sealed a $534 million deal to acquire Big M, Yoplait and Daily Juice. The deal marks the locally owned company's first foray into fresh dairy products. Well, that's good news. So I'll just repeat that. Local supermarket brands, these iconic brands, Big M, Yoplait, Daily Juice, are back in Australian hands, owned now by the Bega Cheese Company. And it's the first foray into fresh dairy products. Support them. Absolutely support them. Okay, let Bega Cheese know they've made the right decision by investing in Australian brands and spending money here in Australia and keeping these companies out of foreign ownership hands. So support them. Control of Norfolk Island could be handed over to Queensland. What do you make of this? News Corp reports New South Wales has pulled out of a $192 million deal to manage the tourist destination. The current deal will expire in June after seven years. Now, the federal government is now scrambling to find another state to take charge of the island and manage its health and education services. From my Queensland listeners, what do you think? Are you happy, perhaps, for your state government, the Palaszczuk government, to put its hands in your pocket to take over Norfolk Island? It generates a lot of money in tourism. What do you think? Give me a call. 13 12 69 is the telephone number. Or should the federal government simply control Norfolk Island? I don't know. Maybe they could put Scott Morrison in charge of marketing. <laughs> A couple of other stories you may want to talk about this morning, uh, and I, I addressed it on my breakfast program in Sydney. There are a couple of areas in Sydney that are 25 minutes apart by a motorway, but there's a 19-year gap in life expectancy. The lower socioeconomic areas out near Penrith, including Bidwell, Wilmot, 
have locals expected to live to the age of 69. However, just 20-odd minutes down the road on the motorway in the Hills District, you can expect to live 19 years longer. Why? Well, we spoke this morning at length about it. The lower socioeconomic areas of Sydney are starting to see people die at a much earlier age. I'll have some more details on this, and I'd love to talk to you about it. Should we reopen public housing in a salt-and-pepper-type approach across other areas of Sydney and New South Wales, rather than just building more and more of these ghetto-type situations? Where people of Pacific Islander background, Indigenous backgrounds and other new Australian backgrounds are all clumped in the one area with little hope of getting a job, little hope of getting adequate health care, little hope of really anything past a life that will end just before they're 70, 69 years of age. There is a major problem in Sydney brewing because of this. Meanwhile, the property industry has ramped up its political donations to a fresh peak that takes its total funding to $54.2 million over the past two decades. New analysis is calling for curbs on the way big companies buy their influence. Donations rose to $5.7 million in 2019 in a long-term trend toward greater spending on major political parties handling federal Liberals about twice as much as federal Labor. Some of the culprits, well, maybe that's a bit harsh, but some of the donors, perhaps looking to buy political influence, include Westfield co-founder Frank Lowy, Harry Trigoboff of Meriton, John Gandell of the Gandell Group and Lang Walker of the Walker Group. They're among the top 10 donors over two decades. Another property magnate, Chow Chuck Wing is the industry's second biggest donor after the Lowy family amid years of controversy over his alleged links to groups connected to the Chinese government. Now, the findings from the Centre for Public Integrity follow the group's analysis of resource industry donations this month, which showed that sector gave $136.8 million to parties and campaign groups over two decades. Property developers are the second largest donating industry behind resources. So you've got the resources industry, property developers, most of them giving their money to federal liberals. Give me a call. Let me know what's on your mind. 13 12 69 is the telephone number. Emails MP in the morning at 2smsupernetwork.com and on the text 0458049209. Now, I know people might want to call and say, ah, Marcus, but what about all the money that the trade unions and unions provide labour? Well, I've got an analysis of that. The figures are dwarfed compared to what resources, magnates and property developers pay the Liberals. I only have a concern with it because, well, first and foremost, I believe there should be no political donations by big business. That's my personal opinion because I think it's it leads the way to too much corruption. Look what happened in New South Wales last year with the sitting Premier fronting ICAC because a dodgy boyfriend was doing deals on the side while being paid by the New South Wales taxpayer. That's my concern. If we allow big business, whether it's the resources industry or property developers, to allow, if we allow them to donate as much money as they want and get as comfy, cosy with our politicians, including mostly the LNP, 
then of course it's going to lead to potential conflicts of interest. If you want to have your say on that, 13 12 69. All right, welcome back. Let's go to the open line now. 13 12 69 is the number. Shane, good morning. How are you, Shane? Yeah, good day, mate. How are you going? All right, thank you, Shane. Yeah, look, uh, thanks for taking my call. Look, I, every, you know, it's been sort of arcing up over the last few years, which I think is really a concern. Exactly 100 years ago, mate, we had um, the Japanese forces right on the, in New Guinea going to come down here, kill every white bloke, every Aboriginal. Like, I mean, they thought the Aboriginals were an inferior race. Yeah, we and were most... at war, yes. We were at yeah. war 1940, well, 1914 uh, to 1920-odd, and then we are at war again uh, 1944 and onwards, yes. Well, well, what I'm trying to say is this invasion day where all these ignoramuses go on about the invasion of so-called the Europeans into this country, they should look at the, um, the, the, the blessing that exactly 100 years ago hundreds of thousands of white, black, green, yellow Australians, all different sorts united, were fighting a desperate fight to fight for their freedoms they've got today, which seems to be not really looked at. They don't really, you know, when I've, I, I, you don't get a chance to have a bit of a discussion about this stuff. But these blokes, I'd like, you, you know, the, the good media, the responsible media, to ask them, you know, this invasion day, what about the Japanese who are going to wipe you out? Well, that would have been a true invasion of a military kind. You're absolutely right. I don't like the term invasion day. I've said that on numerous occasions, Shane, and that's why I've, on this program and others, I've uh, I've spoken to people like Jacinta Price. I think it's far too divisive. I, and to be honest, as I said earlier this morning, mate, I'm, I'm really getting sick to death of every 26th of January or Australia Day. I mean, look at what... Look, look, I'm seeing it on the television now. We had the Australian and Aboriginal flags together on the Sydney Harbour Bridge. We had the Opera House in Indigenous painting and then the Aboriginal flag on the Opera House with fireworks going off left, right and centre. Look, some may say that that's symbolic, but the effort is being made. A former Prime Minister apologised. Yes, of course, we need to close the gap and we need to modify and refine the way that we are funding, closing this gap, as Jacinta Price points out. But there's so much division going on right now. We had like a very tiny minority of Australians protesting in our streets yesterday. It's their right to do that. But they get such big coverage. I don't get it, Shane. Well, it's well proven in America. It's, it's proven by the certain media who are responsible. There was a guy named George Soros, this billionaire, who was funding the BLA, or, you know, that Black Lives Matter movement. And the two people who were actually the main instigators of it, who, two Negroes, they were being well-funded and they were actually communists. They were registered communists. So this is a process of, I believe, other forces to get morons to go about this process of not knowing their history to take it on maybe a bit of money uh, you know shifts hands i'd like to have some good investigative reporters in this country to actually really look into the goings of certain media markets not you but certain media in this country i believe are working off a foreign agenda and well i won't say anything else whoever who's who's got an australian citizen working for them but you know there's been a big problem in america hasn't there with this blw when they were tearing country they're tearing country, yeah. um, 
cities apart, yep. Marcus. But then the Americans got frustrated. You know, some Americans got frustrated, mm. and you know they do their stuff, and then oh, you know, huge terrorists. But these BL all last year they were tearing statue, they were just destroying whatever cultural significance they had in America down. Well, you can so, tear down as many statues as you want, but you will not erase history. What we need to do is identify it uh, and understand in a mature way there's a way through of, you know, perhaps reconciling any differences. I thought we'd already done that, to be honest, Shane, but obviously um, there is a minority out there that believe we haven't. Um, and again, if we change the date, what will that change? Probably nothing. If we rename Australia Day Invasion Day, what will that change? Probably nothing. Sometimes I get the opinion that, uh, you know, no matter what we do, and don't get me wrong, I have the utmost respect and understanding for Indigenous people. However, I see the root cause of the problem being identified by academics and those who've done research like Jacinta Price. If we're, there's no point every 26th of January going down to Hyde Park screaming blue murder if you're not prepared to do anything about it yourselves. I mean, all I see are people attacking Jacinta Price, who is trying to come up with a workable solution to the problem. Why is Jacinta being attacked by people? Well, they believe she's being bought off by uh, other interests. Well, I can guarantee you she's damn well not. Absolutely not. Anyway, thirteen twelve sixty nine the telephone number if you want to have you say. Vic, are you there? Yeah, Marcus, hi, how are you? Hi, Vic. Well, thanks, mate. What's on your mind? Mate, I, I just uh, was listening to you earlier today and you were talking about big business donating to the Liberal Party. Yep. And you said just a while ago that although Labor is funded by the, the unions, that, that, then you said... It, it's not to the same extent, but what is, does that really matter? I mean, because if you're going to fund or, or you're going to donate, you're going to expect a favour back one way or the other. All right, but what do unions do? Uh, unions lead to, I don't know, uh, safer working conditions, uh, eight-hour days, penalty rates, public holiday payments. Uh, what have big business ever done for the worker? Let's let's be honest. If, if we want to... Well, well, I, I think, yeah, yeah. I agree with what you said about the unions, but I mean, big business employs a lot of people. Um, let's look at Qantas. They're yeah, but they make a hell of a lot more money than unions do. See, this is the difference. Unions are not money-making, profit-making machines. And that's yeah. the difference. Your Frank Lowys and all these people out there in big business make a ton of money, quite often going to shareholders, big dividends, all the rest of it. That's their right. That's our system. It's a capitalist system. I get that. Uh, look, I agree. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it'd be great to keep unions at arm's length from political parties as well. Exactly, yeah. Look, I, I agree with what you're saying. Um, I think there there's two evils that we should be looking at, not just one. I mean, surely, uh, and thank you for the call, Vic, surely we can look at perhaps another system in play where our political paradigm sees absolutely no donations of any sort from external, uh, from external external sources. Why can't we have Australian taxpayers fund political parties? We already do to an extent, you know, depending on how many votes they get, they get a certain amount of money. But why can't taxpayers, the people who 
our politicians are truly meant to represent? Why can't we fund our political parties rather than big business and unions? Is it worth a thought? Would it lead to greater transparency? Would it lead to less corruption? Would it lead to perhaps less favours being done? Um, I don't know. There's just a too big a risk in particular when it comes to property developers who are and the resources sector who are some of the biggest donators to the LNP, for instance. There's just too much of a potential there for a conflict of interest. That's my opinion. You may disagree. 13, 12, 69, then up. This is Marcus Paul in the morning. If we all agreed all the time, oh, how boring would life be? Absolutely, mate. Uh, isn't yep. it great that we live in a country where we can have different opinions because there are a lot of places around this globe where you can't? You know, it's yeah, that's a part of, of living in Australia, our democracy. And as, I, as I've said most of the morning, mates, Dave, as I've said, Dave, uh, we've won the lottery of life living in this wonderful country. We're bringing you all the news and the views. Marcus, Paul in the morning. Yeah, give us a call, 13 12 69, my telephone number. Look, we don't block people off our social media page, uh, Marcus, Paul in the morning, but I think I'm about to. Mark Stewart. Mark, please, one morning and one only, do not share anything on our page relating to Craig Kelly. Okay, Mark, otherwise you will be blocked. All right? Uh, I don't care whether you agree or believe in some of the misinformation being peddled by this bloke who is extremely dangerous. You won't be sharing it on our platform, just like I won't allow the comments and the commentary around um, misinformation of COVID-19 vaccines on this program. Okay, uh, Mark? So, like I say, call another announcer who might allow it, but I don't. 13 12 69, the telephone number. Thea, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you? Well, thank you. What's on your mind? Um, look, I've been reading about Australia Day on the 26th of January, and I found something that I thought was rather interesting. Um, on, according to what I've read, the 26th of January 1949, Nationality of Citizenship Act was um, enacted. Um, and that day... Um, all Australians, including Aboriginals and anyone else who came to Australia at that time, were given um, an Australian passport. So we were no longer British citizens, were we? Well, right? no, that's so right, what I'm yes. Saying, yep. Right, so what I'm saying, that day actually became, oh, that's why we celebrate Australia Day, because we all became one under an Australian passport. And what I don't get is why, why are we having this problem with the 26th of um, January? Well, it's not the day of any such invasion, unquote, uh, anyway. You're absolutely right. I don't know why we do each and every year. It suits the agenda of some who want a change of the date, who want to agitate and want to keep going around and around in circles with this same debate. All right, 13 12 69, the telephone number to have you say. Marcus Paul in the morning. Um, look, I'm more than happy to continue the conversation about this, Australia Day, and all the division of yesterday. Um, I see Anthony Albanese says the award given to Margaret Court on Australia Day isn't deserved because she hasn't played tennis in decades. 
So Albo, I think, is on the wrong side, right side of that argument there. Um, if you want to have your say, what about the Australian of the Year yesterday? Uh, wasn't she? She's just amazing. Young Tara from down there in uh, in Tasmania. It was a really, really good Australian of the Year choice, I think. G'day, Mike. Are you there, mate? No, Mike didn't hold on. Uh, let's go to Craig. Are you there, Craig? Yes, Marcus. How are you going? All right, thank you, Craig. What's on your mind? Um, I don't want to talk about Craig Kelly or anything that he's talking about, but you just said something about how you won't allow it on the Facebook page or something because of misinformation. Were you? Is, is that specifically about COVID? What? What? And as I said, I don't want to talk about him. It's more about the principle of misinformation. Yeah. Is it because he doesn't know what he's talking about? Is that what you think? Or he's saying something that's blatantly untrue? No, it's because uh, the drugs that he is referring to have not been approved by the uh, Therapeutic Goods Administrators here in Australia, and it's not the uh, vaccines that taxpayer money has been spent on. Uh, now, right, right. Whether, or, whether or not um, down the track... Ivermectin and the other thing will be used. Well, that's yet to be tested. See, the problem that I have, Craig, is when, you know, if I allow... And I know apparently Craig Kelly was on this network yesterday. Right, OK. Well, I, I, I believe that's dangerous. I believe allowing somebody who's not a doctor to get on the air to spruik about a vaccine or any kind of so-called miracle cure for any illness, take a... You know, what about if I allowed somebody on to talk to hundreds of thousands of people, uh, you know, every week saying, oh, look, I've got a cure for cancer. Rub this cream into your backside. I mean, that yeah, would be yeah. irresponsible, would it not? Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That's where I I'm coming to... from. That's all. Yeah. It, you know, no, that's fine. I don't want somebody who, you know, injects themselves with ivermectin if they have COVID-19. I don't want somebody who, you know, may get seriously ill or even worse. I don't want them or their family coming after the operator of this network wanting to sue them because someone on this network promoted these drugs. It's not up to us as announcers to promote any drug. Okay, if the government, and they will spend money around our network promoting the vaccines that are available, they're the ones I'll talk about. I will not talk about the others that the government's taxpayers, you and I, have spent buying jabs on. It's, you know, the vaccines have been, uh, are being tested have been approved by the Therapeutic Goods Administration of Australia. They're the ones we've got. If you don't like it, don't take it. All right, but it's it's not your place or it's not, in my opinion, any broadcaster's place to get on the air and spruik some miracle cure that does not have government approval. It's irresponsible. And I think somewhere in the Act, it's probably illegal as well. And it leads to morons like this, darling. Mate, this is the most redneck radio station that's going on. This, you can't talk to it. You can't get a decent word across the airways if you don't agree with some of your fellow radio announcers. What are they trying to do? Still uh, listeners from TGB? Like, I want to talk about the Margaret uh, Court fiasco. Oh, three cheers for Margaret Court. She's a dead set legend. Uh, she's got the gullies and she's able to stand up and, against these rednecks. If you want to look at what's going on, Trumpy, they stole the election off him. There's a thing called Rebel News, and it's all just starting to come out. Also, the Trumpet.com talks about uh, how they stole the election. 
We are so blinded out here in the West with this cockly doodle dude nonsense these guys keep putting down on us, mate. We're just so stupid here in the West. We, you wouldn't feed half of us. We're all walking around with a stupid mask on, all the different influenza A's. And B, I've had a gut for this radio station. Cockly doodle dude, my old uh, cockly doodle dude. All the news and your views. Marcus Paul in the morning. Now, let's be totally honest. Do you feel so much more stupid having heard that moron for the last 45 seconds? My apologies. Do you agree with me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thought you did. Marcus Paul in the morning, 13, 12, 69. Give me a call. On the John Laws Morning Show, Lawsy back on Monday around Australia. Monday, Feb 1st. Here's Roxette. Yeah, Marcus Paul in the morning, Australia's only independence and contemporary talkback show. Give me a call, let me know what's on your mind. I think Mick wants to talk about the ABC. Hello, mate, how are you? Are you there? Is it Mick? Is that his name? I think it is. Mick, are you there, mate? Yeah, mate. Oh, yeah, I got you there, you buddy. Hear? Yeah, I got you yeah, now. Yeah, this is a terrible line, mate. All right, let's persevere. What did you want to say, my friend? Not much. Okay. Maybe we'll uh, take a break and come back. Maybe Mick's having a, a bit of a drama on that line. Let's just check him out there, Scruff. 13, 12, 69 emails. MP in the morning at 2smsupernetwork.com. I'll get to those in just a moment as well. Filling in for John Laws, Marcus Paul. Get in contact with Marcus anytime. Connect with us at 2smsupernetwork.com. Email us. Check out our podcasts. And listen live to smsupernetwork.com. Hello, John. Are you there? Yes, I am. Hello, mate. How, how are you today? Okay. What's on your mind, John? Okay. Look, um, I've got a bit of a problem. Um, I'm um, um, having trouble with the, with the Commonwealth Bank. Right. In, in that um, I'm severely disabled. As a matter of fact, I happen to be one of the thalidomide people. Sorry um, to hear that. That's okay, mate. I live a pretty good, happy life, you good, know. Good man. Thanks, thanks very much. Um, yeah, um, it's just, I'm having problems with the Commonwealth Bank. Uh, in the, they, they're trying, they're trying to get me uh, to uh, go into a branch, which is physically impossible, you know. Right. Uh, to, for for proof of identification, and I've been with the bank for a, a while now. Yep. Um, and all of a sudden, they're wanting me to to front up with um, identification to, to go to a insider branch when I'm on that. Why are they again, asking? I'm, why are they asking? If you've been a long term customer, why are they asking you for your identification? Yeah, that's what John? I can't understand either. You know. All right. Well, if the bank, uh, what did they told you this personally? Somebody over the phone, or did you get a oh, letter? Oh yeah, yeah, all the time. Every time I go to uh, get something done, that, like on my credit card. Yeah. Oh, sorry. You know, for a dinner. You're going to have to front up and go into to a branch, you know? All right. Well, I'd, I'm, there are a couple of things here. Uh, first and foremost, I would have thought that the Commonwealth Bank had what they call mobile bankers, that is, people driving around in those little cars that they, you know, visit people to fill in paperwork and sign documents for home loans, etc. So if they desperately uh. need to see you or cite you signing something... They should be able to send somebody out to your home. If you don't get anywhere on that, you can call the Australian Financial Complaints Authority, one eight hundred nine three one six seven eight. 931 678 I mean, yeah. I can put you back to Justin. He can give you that number. But apart from that, 
I mean, banks have their own policies. Maybe they're concerned about fraud. I don't know. I think it's more a private matter. But I would have thought that banks would be able to send somebody out to. Um, you know, they've got these mobile bankers that are driving around. I know that they mostly deal with working people signing documents for contracts and um, mortgages, etc., and loans, but still. All right, mate, if they desperately need to cite you and they want your business, they'll help you, John. If not, I'd suggest you go to another bank. Yeah, by the way, the Australian Financial Complaints Authority, number 1800 931 678. Brian, good morning. How are you? Hello, Brian. Are you there? Oh, yeah. Yes, Brian. Yeah, um, I'm just uh, thinking about the the deals that want to protest uh, about Australia Day. Well, no, hang on. They're not deals. It's it's our right to protest. Well, look, yes, it's your right to call them deals. I disagree. People have a right to protest. If you want to protest anything, I, I think they're protesting the wrong things. I'd love to set up a protest about paying tolls. That's what I'd love people in their hundreds of thousands to gather out the front of, I don't know, State Parliament in Sydney, screaming blue murder about how the fact we're being ripped off over tolls. That's what I'd love a protest about. But anyway, go ahead. OK, I would draw the word dills. Um, <laughs> it's OK, mate. I'm just playing. <laughs> yes. Uh, no, I would draw the word dills. The people who protest and want to call it Invasion Day, I wonder if they realise that after our first fleet landed... Ten minutes later, there was La Perouse. Uh, so he probably would have um, wanted to take over Australia in the name of France. And oui, if oui. you go back further, you've got Dirk yeah. Hartog, a Dutchman, a pinning Dutch. his uh, pewter plate to a tree. So he'd been here, and there's yep. evidence of Indonesians and all sorts of people had landed on what they probably thought was an inhospitable area and didn't hang around too long. But then, okay, come forward a bit. Um, there was fear of a Russian invasion, so forts were built. You know, a pinch gut in Sydney Harbour. Yep. Um, forts Grassy, Newcastle. You know, there was forts built to repel a feared Russian invasion, which didn't happen. Yeah. Okay, then Second World War. You had uh, an invasion fleet heading for Australia, manned by the Japanese Navy, and it was repelled in the Battle of the Coral Sea. Otherwise, That's right. Otherwise, they might have been eating um, goanna and rice, for all I know. Oh, so. I wonder how tasty that might be. Look, you're absolutely right. I think you made your point. We could have been speaking French, Dutch, perhaps even Japanese. Who knows? Uh, yeah, Australia Day should be a day of unity. I would argue if we do have the date changed... Will it stop the debate? Probably not. Uh, John says, Marcus, the argument about Invasion Day and the date continues. Uh, could you please ask on your program for one of the leaders of the change to the date to come on and tell us if the date was changed, if Australia Day could be celebrated in future without the protests? I very much doubt it will make any difference, says John. Uh, here we go. Neil. Neil says, Marcus, I emailed one of your daytime colleagues last week who used the words miracle cure for a drug. I quoted the advice from all major health authorities, including the one source he chose to cite, who confirmed there's no hard evidence for its uh, efficacy, although there were, they were calling for further tests. 
The claims of wonder drug and big pharma conspiracy babble continued. And now I just change channels whenever I tune in and hear that. All right. Well, look, at the end of the day, uh, again, let me repeat. um, Everybody's entitled to talk about uh, cures for this, cures for that. There are a lot of people who believe rubbing a certain cream on you will make you a little bigger. If you're that stupid, go ahead. Go for your life. But at the end of the day, when it comes to something as important as a pandemic, as a virus that has killed now more than 2 million people around the world, as of yesterday, then I'm sorry, uh, I will believe the experts from the Australian government. I'll set aside any conspiracy babble. I will confirm that the drugs that we paid for from whomever that have been approved by our Therapeutic Goods Administration are the ones we should be talking about. If anybody's got a problem with those drugs, feel free to call us. But you just can't spruik the other ones because they have not been approved. 13 12 69, that's the telephone number. We're off to the news. We'll come back and talk to you for the second hour of the John Laws Morning Show. Lawsy is back next Monday. 2SM has Sydney talking. Susan, hello. Hello. How are you? I just got to lean over the fence to talk to you now. You got to lean over the fence. Explain. Yeah, 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 this, I, I commented on that um, uh, yesterday. The, the line, the the improvement in the in the in the technology, the phone is absolutely beautiful. Where a lot of people had difficulty hearing you, and I had difficulty too. No one cares. No one cares. Get on with it. What do you want Did to talk about, Susan? Someone pay the bill. <laughs> Susan, <laughs> come right. on. Okay. Chop, chop. Okay. Okay. Chop, chop. I'll move on. Yes. Now, now, these juveniles uh, are no longer children. You know, uh, this thieving vehicles uh, seems to be their choice. You know, um, it's the flavour of the whatever it is, uh, a flavour of technology by the looks of it, but they're killing and destroying lives, you know, and this needs to be uh, uh, dealt with more severely um, it's obvious that, that what's in place is not a deterrent. Yes, the problem is uh, when 17-year-olds uh, are behind the wheel and they're uh, acting illegally, they don't have the experience or the skills or the life uh, well, life experience to deal with probable emergencies if they're doing a bolt because they've perhaps knocked off a car. Look, I don't want to go into this into too much details because it's all alleged, but the story from Queensland is absolutely horrific. We've got a 17-year-old who's apparently uh, fanging down a, a fairly major road in the city of Brisbane, and hits a number of pedestrians, including a pregnant woman. So a man and a woman walking their dog. The dog was also killed. The man and a woman killed. They believed that this woman was also pregnant. And it was just minutes after this driver, this 17-year-old, was involved in a road rage incident. Marcus, yeah. Marcus, mm. every day in, we listen to the news and the car theft is off the planet with these juveniles. And I'm sick to death of hearing about it. We all know that they're inexperienced. Yeah. Let's start teaching them some a discipline, some lessons. Well, well said. Uh, problem is we're way too soft when it comes to this sort of crime. Absolutely way too soft. And we need to increase the penalties or create perhaps some better deterrent. I don't know what the answer is, Jeff. Uh, in fact, uh, as I'm speaking now, I'm looking 
at the uh, the footage of this this young bloke in the white four-wheel drive ramming into what seems to be a silver-looking Hyundai. So he was involved in that road rage incident and then involved in the horror crash that near Mount Cotton on Vienna Road that's led to the deaths of these people. Awful story. Jeff, are you there, mate? Uh, Jeff, hello? Jeff? Hello. Yes, Jeff. How you going? Marcus, is it? It is, Jeff. Last time I checked. Let me check. Yep, still me. <laughs> Good on you, mate, Jeff. Yeah. yeah, I'd like to speak about it too. Look, it's just a revolving door that these young kids are going through. Time up. This guy had 50 convictions. Now, you'd give them one, two or three chances, you know, and they just get slapped on the wrist and away they go again. They're all out on bail. They're doing the same crimes over and over and over again. And I believe the death of those, well, three people, really, yeah. Two, two grown-up adults and, and a bub in, you know... And, uh, and don't forget an innocent... What a terrible, innocent terrible animal thing. as well. And who, who, do we, who do we jail up? Do we jail up the judges? Well, they need to be held responsible, certainly, if they continually let out a bloke. And how many, did you say, how many charges 50, has he been up 50, on before? 50. 50 convictions. Oh, for God's and, sake. mate, how much has it cost the police force? How much has it cost the judicial system to put them through the courts you know all the all the and they don't defend themselves it's coming out of taxpayer money time and time and time again slapped on the wrist they they get out there and do the same thing all over again you know wreck cars wreck people's lives and uh, in this case murdering people and it's just outright murder and i do blame the judges i think the judges are the ones or the, the people who set the laws we've got to change these laws mate real quick all right well said thank you so much for the call i appreciate it peter good morning are you there no peter didn't hold on we just check mate um just yeah we'll just check those callers i need to take a break anyway Thirteen twelve sixty nine is the telephone number when i come back i'm gonna play you back a, a caller that i had earlier this morning that got me thinking in relation to the disparity of socio-economic, well, socio-economic um, opportunities, jobs, health, all the rest of it between areas in Sydney, the re- and I don't want to make it Sydney-centric, but of course you can, uh, in a way, correlate it to wherever you're listening to us around Australia. The problem is that right now there is uh, a number of suburbs in Sydney's west whereby the living age, that is, the age expected to, you know, uh, life expectancy, that's a better way of putting it, is sitting at 69 years of age, which is way too young, in my opinion. And just down the road on a motorway, you've got people who are expected to live 19 years longer. So there's a 19-year age gap between people who live in poorer areas of Sydney's west to those that live in perhaps the more affluent areas like the Hills District. Why? Why is this the case? Why is there someone who lives in, say, Bidwell expected only to survive to 69, whereas someone who lives in, say, Cherrybrook or Dural will live to a much older age? Why is that the case? I would suggest because there are less opportunities available. And again, we are continually building slums where we just pop people in you know lower socio-economic areas, in public housing spots, and let them try and get on with it. Doesn't work. It's a failure of public policy. Anyway, I had a really good caller this morning 
who made me think whether I was on the right track on this. I'm going to play it back for you in just a moment, and I'd love to get your thoughts. 13 12 69, the telephone number. Filling in for John Laws. I thank Marcus. He's a very good broadcaster, full stop. We love this industry. We love what we're doing. Marcus wouldn't mind doing a double at all. Marcus Paul in the morning. Call 13 12 69. All right, John is back on Monday morning. Meantime, I'd love to hear what you have to say about all the news. I need your views. 13 12 69, MP in the morning at 2SM. If you would like to send me an email, Robert, hello, mate. Oh, hello. Yes, um, Robert. I, I've just tuned in, and I, I must have missed your comments or the people's comments on those people, pedestrians that were killed. Yeah, awful story. I've been boosting down. My comment is uh, it's horrific. Like, how could judges uh, let a person out on bail on 50 charges? and commit something like that. He should be held responsible, the judge, I feel. Well, look, unfortunately, we are way too soft on juveniles. And, look, I'm all for, um, you know, trying to get people to do the right thing after they've spent time in jail. Uh, are we are we tough enough? Probably not. Juvenile detention centres, I mean, I've heard stories where the kids go there and run amok. They've got the latest iPads, they've got the latest fandangled computers, they get to watch television, and there's not much else going on. Look, in fairness, they do have the opportunity, I guess, to undertake courses, TAFE courses, and, and not all of them are doing the wrong thing, uh, and some are rehabilitated. But there is just that small minority of mongrels that just refuse for, for whatever reason. Look, the story is, and there are more details emerging now, that this teenager, this 17-year-old, will face court today in Brisbane charged with murder following the death of two pedestrians, including a pregnant woman, hit and killed while out walking their dog. The boy was arrested a short time later after being held to the ground by a local residence when the teen allegedly tried to run from the scene. Now, the allegation is the 17-year-old was driving a stolen Land Cruiser four-wheel drive when he went through a red light and ploughed into a truck at Alexandra Hills. It's alleged the four-wheel drive was stolen between 4 and 5 o'clock yesterday from a Cleveland house prior to the deadly rampage. Moments earlier, the four-wheel drive was filmed appearing to engage in a road rage attack, deliberately colliding with the silver Hyundai at the intersection of Vienna and uh, Finnecane roads before speeding away. About 15 minutes later, he allegedly lost control of the four-wheel drive after speeding through a red light at Finnecane Road and Vienna Road and collided with a truck. The Land Cruiser then rolled and struck two pedestrians crossing the road. They died at the scene. It's believed the woman who was killed, a 31-year-old, was pregnant. So was her partner, a 37-year-old man. He wasn't pregnant, but he was killed, obviously. One of their dogs is missing while the other is in the care of family, but it's also believed that the animal was killed as well at the site. The teenage boy allegedly fled the scene of the crash just after 5.30 and stole a set of keys from a Kingston Avenue house and tried to start a car in the garage. So this mongrel not only had gone on this rampage, but then he wasn't finished. He allegedly tried to steal another car. 
The Holmes residence crash-tackled the boy in nearby Chelsea Crescent and held him down before police arrived. The resident said, I saw him walking across the lawn, acted like I was going to run him over, stopped and jumped out. I got him on the ground. He went to get up, so I gave him a kick or two, put him on his face and told him to wait until police arrived. The driver was arrested and taken to hospital for minor injuries. Now, I had an earlier caller who said this bloke was apparently uh, on bail or had faced a number of driving charges and other charges previously. I'm yet to confirm that. But boy, oh boy, a 17-year-old from Waterford West has been charged with two counts of murder, one count of dangerous operation of a vehicle, two counts of burglary and one count each of unlawful, unlawful use of a motor vehicle, attempted unlawful use of a motor vehicle, and apparently <laughs> he was also on drugs, adversely affected by an intoxicating substance. Well, that may well be alcohol, but I suspect it was something different. Glenn, good morning. How are you? Yeah, good, mate. That's good. Glenn, what's on your mind? Uh, just with your banning of Craig Kelly, mate, I, I know it's your show, but I disagree with you because if I want to listen to government propaganda, I'll listen to the ABC, mate. All right, well, off you go then, moron. 13, 12, 69. Ivana, are you there? Yes. Hello, Michael Ivana. I'm here, and I'm um, enjoying your show. Thank you. Uh, I like to say a few things that what I'm listening. Uh, i just change the subject a little bit. Ivana, the other, yes. The other case, that, that person, he was uh, 28 and did something very wrong to a 98, 92-year woman. I just wonder that judges should be really hard on that person. But this the topic you're talking about, young kids, it's happening everywhere. And I think it's time judges think very hard, very seriously about young kids. I mean, these kids, what they're doing, because they are really having fun. And I think somebody should say, and that's the judges, that they, whatever they're doing, it's wrong. Well, look, if you're 17, you're damn well old enough to face a court when you've allegedly run over two people, killing them. Of course, that's what I'm saying. That's you should be exactly. tried as an adult. This bloke, this 17-year-old, should be tried as an adult and exactly. face the consequences exactly. that an adult would face. Okay, can I just ask, uh, can I say something else because nobody's talking about it, please? And I'm sure people will ring back and say something. I like to bring this out because I'm helping some people. All the people who has bought houses in the past, bought their new homes in the past five years, now with the virus, lots and lots of people have lost homes. I'm actually helping, you know, some people, and I have actually helped one family to put the solar. What I'm saying is, I feel sorry because some of these people have lost a job, and by end of this year, there'll be a lot of people on the street those good people who were working had a job and now they got nothing. And I always see people talk about it because people are suffering and now government, nobody's doing anything about those people. Well, uh, look, in fairness, um, there's been a lot of support. Uh, we've had, you know, uh, things like job keeper, job seeker. Uh, there's been government payments. There's been a hell of a lot of taxpayer money. 
provided. Uh, whether or not it, it should continue, I guess that's up for discussion, absolutely. But it's not the taxpayers of Australia or the, the government for that matter. It's not our responsibility to pay people's mortgages, Ivana. Uh, and I'm sorry if you've lost your job during the pandemic. Look, let me put it this way. If I had a mortgage, I owned a property and I lost my job and I wanted to keep my home, I'd go to every building site I could nearby and I'd say, look, I can mix mud. You want me to stack those bricks? You need a hand. You need a labourer. Do you need somebody to do something so that I can earn some money until I find a job that I'm qualified in? I'd go and pick fruit. I'd do whatever I possibly could to an order uh, to enable myself to pay my mortgage. I'm sorry. I-, I hate to be really blunt and frank about it. It's not the taxpayer's responsibility to pay your mortgage. It's yours. Yes, I get that we've had some issues with COVID-19 and people have lost jobs and people have lost their work, but I mean, there are jobs out there, okay? You can't always be reliant on the taxpayer to pick you up every time you fall. It's supposed to be, you know, a bit of a hand up, not a constant handout. I know that sounds a little blunt, but again, if I had a mortgage and I was paying off a home and I had to feed a family, which I've done in the past, you know, I haven't always had a, a you know a great radio job like this. I haven't always had a radio job. <laughs> I've had to bust my gut on building sites. I've had to mix mud. I've had to lay bricks in 38 degrees. I've had to do whatever I can to ensure that my two boys were fed and that I had a roof over their heads. And that I could pay my bills and I could buy a car, run the car, go to work, etc. There are jobs out there. There's plenty of work out there. Just got to get off your ass and be involved and do it. I know that sounds generalised and easy, but I mean, (laughs) there's work out there. It mightn't be what you are qualified in, mightn't be what you want to do. We don't always get to do what we want to do, but if your priority is keeping your home, and if you can't, I can understand that, and sell the home, and with the equity, rent somewhere, or perhaps downgrade, move somewhere cheaper, get a, a lower mortgage, talk to your bank. There are a whole range of ways. You know, it's, you know, Ivana says, you know, people are going to end up homeless. Well, yes, some people will end up homeless if they let it happen to themselves. Strong people won't enable it to happen to themselves. They'll do whatever they possibly can to ensure they're paying their bills, even if it means picking up a labouring job or going and, I don't know, putting bread into, uh, what you know, picket sort of things, you know, pick and pack sort of jobs. Go to an agency. They're always crying out for people to do these menial jobs. Someone needs to do them. But it's good, honest money because you're earning it. You're not sitting back feeling sorry for yourself. Why was me? I've lost my job because of damn COVID. Expecting the taxpayer each and every month to pay your bills for you. It's supposed to be a hand up, not a continual handout. All right, now, uh, plenty of people texting through 0458 049 209. Uh, let's have a look here. Wow. Uh, Like I say, the text line is the place of trolls. But anyway, imagine having two first names. (laughs) Okay. Imagine, whoever you are. Uh, This one, I agree, Jacinda Ardern has done a great job in New Zealand. Just remember, though, Marcus, she doesn't have to deal with state premiers and can make decisions for the whole country. 
This one from Anthony just banned political advertising. Then they wouldn't need donations. It's all propaganda anyway. Politicians can always go on shows like yours, appear on television shows or write editorials. You're also forgetting social media. I mean, that's a big way politicians these days try and connect with their constituents. Uh, Rockefeller, Margaret Court, the lady who excludes homosexuals from being loved by her made-up God. Plenty of Aussies would hate to have her as a proud Australian. What a waste. Rockefeller. All right, thank you. Uh, And this one, Patsy, who's on the tweed. Patsy's about to go into hospital for an operation. Patsy, I wish you all the best, but thank you for listening to us over the last couple of weeks here on the Lawsy Show. Uh, Dan from Byron Bay. Dan, I'll read out your texts in a moment, but I'll give you a choice. I'm really going to tear strips off you, Dan, but how about you give me a call? Maybe, well, I've got your number here, Dan. Maybe we can call you. But I'll give you a chance, Dan. 13 12 69 is the telephone number if you... Have the balls, Dan, to give me a call rather than being a coward behind your mobile phone sending these texts. I'd love to have a conversation with you. Helen, good morning. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Excellent. Helen, what do you want to talk about, Doug? Oh, look, I just think Jacinda Price should have been made Australian of the Year. Okay. Absolutely. I think she's an amazing woman and she not only is fighting to close the gap, her people are against her because they think she's got some sort of agenda. She's an amazing woman. She's telling it how it is. I know for a fact from first-hand experience the amount of money the government is giving for education and health in the Northern Territory for Aboriginal people. Um, Catherine in the Northern Territory doesn't even have uh, uh, a clinic that a white person can go to. And they have to wait for hours yeah. at, the, at the public hospital. And, and they're not allowed to go. They've got a beautiful clinic for the Aboriginal people. Now, um, I have Aboriginal heritage, but I class myself as a person, yeah. not, not as my heritage. I think the, Australian, the Australia has, been, has, has grown up. Um, just what Shane said, I think everything he said was correct. There would have been an invasion and they wouldn't have been here. What the government is... And you can't blame the government. I think it's the mishandling of what the government is giving out. But these children, Mm. I'm just talking about the children, they're having every opportunity. And I I don't want to get into it, but I know from first-hand experience the allied health that these children in foster care are offered. Uh, And it's just, as I said, Jacinda Price is just my hero. Okay. I think... I think she's trying to do everything possible to close the gap. And throwing money is not the answer. Well said. All right, Helen, thank you so much for your point of view. I appreciate it. You take care. Thank you very much. All right, bye-bye. It's five o'clock on a weekday. The regulars start calling in. Marcus Paul on the radio Speaking your mind's not a sin Give him a call on the telephone Tell the world what's on your mind Let's make sense of it all Come on, call Marcus Paul here on 13 Unscripted, genuine and sometimes silly Marcus Paul in the morning. 
All right. Um, I want to call you, Dan. Are you listening, Dan? Uh, I wonder whether I should perhaps give Dan a call. Can I do that? Can I do that live just to see how we go? Um, yes. All right. Mm, 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 mm. Uh, I, the number you have. Nah, okay. Maybe he sent me a wrong number. I don't know. Uh, maybe one of the uh, people from the fortress out there can call Dan. Dan says, Marcus, stick your head in the sand and try your best to bury everyone else's with yours. We can't risk letting people open their eyes or, heaven forbid, think for themselves. Big Farmer would be proud of you. Good job, mate. Dan, Dan's from Byron Bay. Dan has been sampling, I think, some of the local product. Can't handle different opinions either talk over them, shut them down and call them names. No, just you, Dan, because you're a moron. No debate at all. Are you just not smart enough to back your opinion? Of course I am. Classic. Here we go. Here's the label from Dan. Classic lefty stuff. Do I have to explain it again to you, Dan? There is no such thing as left and right, progressive, conservative. They are just hack labels used by people like you, Dan who are nutjob conspiracy theorists, okay? And as for your discussion with me not allowing different opinions either, I think you'll find that this is the most uh, varying uh, opinions on any radio program. I've got people ringing supporting Jacinta Price. I've got people ringing supporting Aboriginals. I disagree with a lot of what my callers have to say and and will rightfully um, tell them so. So I don't allow different opinions. You're a moron, Dan. You're absolutely, completely off the planet. Just because you want me uh, to be like somebody else and get on and spruik Craig Kelly's madness, I'm not your guy, Dan, okay? So I suggest you find another radio station, okay? Or, I don't know, take your little tin foil hat down to your local RSL club and make yourself useful. I don't know. I'm sure there's a floor that needs to be swept somewhere because that's about the level of your IQ. Here we go. Um, I'm at work, so I can't call or I would. No, you wouldn't. And then Dan goes on to say, you'd only hang up on me and call me names anyway. Well, no, I wouldn't, Dan. I'd have a conversation with you, but then you would probably go down the line of labelling me and calling me a lefty again, all the rest of it. All right, Gary, are you there, mate? G'day, how you doing? All right, thank you, Gary. What's on your mind? Um, I'd like to just follow on a little bit more about the comments, uh, which for the most part I agree with, about assisting the Indigenous and how they are. You know, they've got a fair bit to catch up on when it comes to their education and some of their living standards. Yeah. But the programs that they might be... Like, I've worked within the, the system a, a number of times in my uh, career, so it's, well, various careers. But with the changing of a state or, or federal government, some of those programs, or, or a number of those programs, they sort of fall away, particularly the, the uh, social-type supports. 
But what, so the question is, why though, Gary? Why we're spending all this money? We've got all of the the goodwill in the world. We've got all of the the processes uh, to put these things in place. As a, an earlier caller said, who's a fan of Jacinta Price, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders are offered the very best in healthcare being made available in remote areas of Australia, but they don't take it up or don't want to. What's the problem here? Why isn't it happening? A big part of that is education, and I think that's where most of the this really starts and finishes. You've got to find a way to, to get them going to school, being properly educated, and some people, uh, well, I, I don't want to speak too harshly of those who are protesting about this invasion day and all the rest of it, or... Well, no, you can, I mean, you're allowed you to get, have your you've opinion. You've yes. got to get with the program. And yep. uh, as Shane said, I support pretty much everything he said. If it wasn't the people that came, and yes, in the initial, we'll say, first 50, 100 years, some very nasty things happened. But we're trying to move on from that. We're not going to leave. Some of us have been here four or five generations. Oh, absolutely. We've got to, yes. got to learn to live with each other and find our, our way forward if possible, best we can, together. If you disagree, go off and do your thing somewhere else. But we've got to try and do things together and, and move forward together. This rubbish is, you know... I don't know how to express the feeling sometimes. It's you, just frustrating. You sound as frustrated as what I am each and every time it pops its head up at this time of the year. Absolutely. we. I can remember, if I go back on the logger tape uh, to my broadcast this time last year, I'd be talking about the very same issues, just with different names popping up here, there and everywhere, and uh, we'd be going around in the same circles. In the meantime, you just have to wonder how much money's been thrown at the problem without real significant change. Call Marcus now, 13 12 69. On the email, MP in the morning at 2SM, Super Networker, Denise says, Marcus, don't forget Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders get free medications. They get so many lurks and perks, but still they perhaps want more. Free medical, hospital, free housing, but still they want more. Denise in Newcastle. Mm. Well, yes, uh, I think um, governments have, rightly or wrongly, I'd say rightly, tried to perhaps close the gap with a lot of of policy that allows, um, well, benefits, <laughs> for want of a better word, lots of benefits for Indigenous and Torres Strait Islanders, those who have faced, uh, I guess, significant challenges and uh, a lack of opportunity in a number of areas. It's not as if the help isn't there. It's the want to take up the help, I think, that is the major problem. Who knows? What's the answer? Is it Education? I'm not quite sure. Do we need Aboriginal elders now to stop fighting amongst each other and perhaps start taking more responsibility for how their children and others conduct themselves? I don't know. I'm not an expert. But I do read some of the expert analysis, and the best I've read is from Jacinta Price. And I know a lot of people who support me tend to not like Jacinta because they think she's sold out to someone and she's funded by the government, blah, blah, blah. We can't argue with facts. If you're presented with facts and figures, a lot of people put up their arguments with data on climate change, for and against on a whole range of issues. I've got some really good 
data. Again, I urge everybody to read Jacinta's latest piece. You can find it online. It's a really good piece talking about how closing the gap is failing. And it's just in time for the current debate we're having right now. Hello, Philip. Are you there? Yeah, hello, Marcus. How are you? All right, thank you, Philip. What's on your mind, mate? Hey, man, um, I'm so proud to be an Australian citizen, man. I came from South Sudan in uh, 2004. Good I just on wanted you. to add something Please. to uh, the argument, uh, to the debate. Yep. First of all, I just want to say, coming from South Sudan, I went through the Anglo-Egyptian and Turkish condominium agreements and all that before World War II. Yep. My people, we're the ones that built the pyramids and all that. Yep. And until recently, 2005, remember when we became independent, South mm-hmm. Sudan? Yep. We didn't get recognized, see, by the Arabs because they wanted an Islamic state. Now, compared to Australia, it's different a bit because it's a Christian country. Yep. But I just wanted to add this. Please. The Aboriginal people in the villages, like in the bush right now, right? You're not with them. You, you don't know the way they live. You don't, you don't like it. You don't compare it to the city life. And I can understand that. But in order for those children, the great-grandchildren, to grow up with freedom, yep. I reckon... Just like my country became independent after fighting like 40-something years. My father is gone now. Oh, He's yeah. dead. And he died because of that so that I can be free for democracy, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So that we can be recognized yep. as the traditional owners first. So that no one looks at me like I'm a second-class citizen in my own country. That's the reason why they need the recognition. This is what I'm saying. No, that's Get a really good point. Right first, you mm-hmm. know? Yep, and then they can decide for themselves. It's called self-determination. Yep, sub, you know, you can be self-reliant as long as people respect you in your image. Now, people in the city dressed up and fancy things, material things, modern life, industrialism with the pollution and all that. These people in the villages they don't understand that, right? All they know is birds, bees, and trees, and water, and rain, and and their beliefs. You know that are stuck behind. Yep, and it's not up to us to judge them when they try to come to the city to claim for us to just recognize them, you know? Like, that's that's all a really need. good call. That's a really good it call. It opens the mind yep. of the young ones, not the older ones. The older ones, like my grandparents, I can never change them and the hate they had for Arabs or British, mm. you know? Yep. That was colonialism, missionaries. Some of them had bad intentions, you know? Most of them were just people that just wanted to go and start a new business in a different country with new land, grow things, and sell them. You know, that's what happened. Like in the India, they went and got all the spices in India and everywhere else around the world. This is what we need to look at today. We need to look at people like they actually love this land and they want to be recognized in it. And whoever just came to Australia now need to recognize that yeah. and be proud of that. All you right, know? Philip. They're not taking anything from us. No, great call, work, man. And I, I pay taxes. Yes. No one takes anything from me. And yeah. I'm, I'm happy to help my fellow Australians. And we share 
in all the abundance and prosperity that we get. All right. Uh, we'll leave it there, mate, because I, I do need to move on. But, Philip, uh, that's a really good call, and I thank you for making all of those very valid points. And it's lived experience. Uh, Philip is obviously uh, making some analogies there with what's happened in the South Sudan and uh, the hardships that he and his family have been through and himself. Uh, he sounds like a, a very switched-on bloke. Uh, and speaking from experience. Now, I don't know whether you can correlate both uh, to the extent that Philip has, but in his opinion, which he's entitled to, you can. And he does make some very good, valid points, in my opinion. 13, 12, 69, if you want to have your say about that. Uh, look, I, I do want to get back to this other story. Uh, we've been sidetracked with some really good calls. Maybe we might hold off for, till after the news. But I want to talk about the uh, the gap in life expectancy and in urban areas, including our biggest city of Australia, Sydney. I'll get to that maybe after the news. In the meantime, 131269 is the telephone number and emails coming through from Helen. Helen says, Marcus, shouldn't that 17-year-old be charged with three murders? The woman was pregnant with a human life. It's so sad. Barbara says, such a tragedy that an innocent couple can't simply walk their dog for exercise. There's no excuses for anyone to be given any uh, excuses to be in a vehicle, let alone a stolen one. If judges don't really toughen up to dis- uh, deter these fools from being on the road, then all of our lives are at risk. Well said, Barbara. Well said. Oh, by the way, Darcy was in touch earlier in relation to some comments I made about transurban. I said, look, if you really want to get out and protest, why can't we get out in our hundreds of thousands and march down Macquarie Street and demand to know why we're being ripped off by privatisation and tolls in Sydney in particular? Darcy says, Marcus, let's get that rally sorted. These absolute grubs have paid zero tax on the billions that they've stolen from New South Wales taxpayers, and it's definitely time for the people of Sydney to stand up. Australia's king of talkback radio, John Laws, returns Monday, 9am. Now, I wonder how long it'll take for Norman uh, to call John this year. I'd suggest in the first week, perhaps. Hello, Shane, are you there? Yeah, mate. How are you? Well, thanks, Shane. What's on your mind, mate? Um, I just um, I listen to your show a fair bit, and thank you, John Laws, and that every day. But I, it's only about the third or fourth time I've rang up. I've I've got hung up on a few times, but um, it happens. I'd like um, everybody personal. in Australia, yeah, to get their cars and come with me and their tents and caravans, and we'll set up a big um campsite on the lawns down at Parliament House like the Aboriginals did, and then just tell the government what they should do to fix everything up. Yeah, and, um, well, you could, I, I suppose... My first plan would be to um, make the councils bigger yeah. and get, get, get rid of all the state government and have a federal government, and we'd save millions. Well, there's a good idea. I agree with that, Shane. Uh, look, sure. I, And um, yeah. you know what they could do for yeah. the first year or two years? Tell me. Pick fruit. Well, people who don't work, absolutely. Uh, get them involved in agriculture. Yes, good idea. Make people work for the money we provide them uh, in social service payments. So, absolutely. I mean the ones out of the government, the ones that could go and do that. But um, that's, my idea, that's my idea of fixing it. And um, I'd give everybody a house yeah. and everybody some land. Oh, nice. They'd have, to, they'd have to pay rates and everything. Yeah, yeah, of course. We're, we've got that much land here. We could yep. do that. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And, and, and it'd be a good... I think it'd be a lot better. Well said, mate. And the Aboriginals, I'd give them Tasmania <laughs> and say, there you, there you go. All right. We'll leave it there. Thank you, mate. Thirteen, twelve, sixty-nine. if you would like to uh, have your say on that. I like the idea of us all getting a block of land each. That'd be nice. Huh? In the meantime, Marcus Paul in the morning, give me a call. 13 12 69 and the emails. MP in the morning at 2SM, supernetwork.com. Matt says, regarding closing the gap, Marcus, to close the gap, we first have to work out why the current federal funding model isn't working. Anyone can do the maths. $38 billion a year closing the gap funding plus mining royalties for utilising First Nations people's land for the purpose of closing the gap. If I'm correct, First Nations people make up around 5%. If this is the case, every man, woman and child of First Nations descent should get in their bank account around $70,000 annually. How is this not closing the gap? It needs to be looked at because vulnerable First Nations people are missing out. It's a really good note. Thank you, mate. Uh, And John, I don't know who John is, I don't normally do this, John, uh, because I don't agree that it's the right thing to do. But one more note like that from you, and I'll put your email address up on the Facebook account, and I'll let the friendly prawnies at you. Narcissus Paul, biggest left-wing hypocrite on the radio, get rid of that disgusting pig of a man, says John. One more, John, last warning. Otherwise, you'll be trolled mercilessly by friendly Geordies in his mob. I mean, for goodness sake, I allow all sorts of varying opinions on this program this morning. I mean, the last bloke we had on before the news suggested perhaps Indigenous people living in Tasmania. I mean, and I'm called a lefty, for goodness sake. Wow. I mean, that was bordering on total racism, if not stepping over the line. I'm very, very patient. But, John, I've just about lost my patience with you. Go away. Hello, Kay. Are you there, darling? Yeah, I am, mate. Thanks. Hello, Kay. What did you want to say, Kay? Uh, uh, Norfolk Island. Uh, why does New South Wales no one doesn't want to be responsible for the services on the island? And the federal government is talking to Queensland about yeah. taking care of the services. Well, will that end up like Keswick Island if Queensland has control of certain things there? I don't trust the uh, Palajak lady. Palaszczuk government. Uh, mm. Okay, why don't you trust the Palaszczuk government? Well, uh, Keswick Island's been leased, 20% been leased to a Chinese That's uh, right. entity. That's right, yep, yep, well said. And uh, if there's... Uh, Norfolk Island being a long way off the coast is obviously expensive to maintain, and it's quite a ways out in the ocean. So uh, it obviously... They used to look after themselves, mm. and then it was taken over by the New South Wales government because they were having trouble with their, you know, funding their own services. They didn't have enough tourism or whatever it was. And a few years ago, New South Wales took over control of the island and uh, we're administering the health services, those sort of things, taxation, whatever. Norfolk is beautiful. I know people that have been to Norfolk Island and they say it's just a, an absolute unspoilt paradise. I can't understand why um, somebody... I can't Look, I don't get why New South Wales, the state government of New South Wales... Um, uh, prepared to give it up. I mean, surely... Because it costs money to maintain. Yeah, That's but, a long way from here. But you need to spend money to make money. Surely 
um, you know, in a current yes. COVID-19 situation. I mean, it wouldn't take too much of a joinius to understand there is a golden opportunity. It's a gold mine. Yeah, a, a gold golden mine. opportunity available there to have some safe uh, bubble-type uh, travel arrangements between Australia and Norfolk Islands, uh, in particular, if it's New South Wales, between you know Sydney Airport, Norfolk Island, get people over there enjoying themselves, holidaying, etc. Make a deal, do something, promote the place. I don't know. Make it an ideal tourist attraction or destination if it's owned by the state government of New South Wales, which it still currently is. Why wouldn't they? I mean, I can understand the Palaszczuk government wanting to get their claws on it because. Yes. You know, if you're going to spend $192 million to manage the secluded tourist haven, and if you're half decent, you know, in your policies toward tourism, you could get a massive return on that investment. I think so, too. It's one of the places that I wanted to go to. Yeah. In my retirement, on my bucket list, shall we say. Well, it's gorgeous. It's absolutely beautiful. Look, the the story is the Queensland government is in talks with the Commonwealth about providing health and education services on the remote volcanic island with a six-year deal with New South Wales set to expire this June. The Commonwealth-funded Norfolk Island Regional Council provides local and some state government services. However, health and education funding has been dispensed by New South Wales since 2016, costing around $32 million each and every year. Now, New South Wales does want to walk away from the island this June, so the federal government is now scrambling to find another state or territory willing to take the surface contract. Tourism bosses believe the isolated Australian Territory, which is around 1,400 kilometres off Brisbane, in the Pacific Ocean with just 1,800 residents, will be another jewel in Queensland's tourism crown. It's no wonder that Anastasia Palaszczuk wants to get a clause into it. Now... What do you make of it? We know that the Australian Capital Territory, the ACT, has already knocked back the federal government's service request, seemingly putting Queensland in a one-horse race to take over the territory of Norfolk Island. I get how the ACT would balk at it because the ACT economy is like a, I don't know, a five-cent piece compared to the Queensland economy, which, you know, is probably a dollar coin or a two-dollar coin. You get the analogy, right? Anyway... The detail of the island deal is yet to be decided. However, it is understood Queensland will continue managing more than $32 million in health and education services and the federal government would assist with at least some of the cost. Surely, what about my point? Creswell Bay, Norfolk Island, gorgeous spot. Better than anything, I think, that certainly uh, a lot of areas in Australia have to offer because it's so unspoiled. We have beautiful areas, of course, along our coastline in New South Wales and Queensland in particular, but a lot of it is built up. A lot of it has been overdeveloped. Some of the heritage on Norfolk Island is magnificent. It's untouched. Now, before COVID-19, the island hosted around 25,000 visitors a year, generating around $33 million, making up for around 40% of its economy. Until 2010, in fact, residents paid no federal income tax. Now, the island where people speak English in the local language of Norfolk was crippled by a lack of tourists during and, of course, due to the pandemic. Now, if we've got next to zero cases happening here in Australia, and obviously they have zero cases on Norfolk, and I understand the risk involved, you don't want to 
you know, have cases of COVID-19 on Norfolk Island because, obviously, there'd be a lack of health resources to deal with an outbreak. But surely we can set this up as some kind of tourist haven. And if Queensland get their claws into it, which I think they will, they'll probably do a pretty good job of attracting tourists there. So long as, as my caller mentioned, they don't start flogging it off to the Chinese. That's the last thing we want. And certainly I would imagine the last thing that the residents of Norfolk Island would want. All righty, give me a call, 13 12 69. Look, before John comes back on Monday, hopefully either tomorrow or on Friday, we'll have a chat with the Australian of the Year, uh, Grace, and it'll be wonderful. Um, of course, we played some of the audio from her speeches yesterday. Uh, and I look forward to that. So we've got, a uh, hopefully, a, a chat with the Australian of the Year. Uh, also, Bill Shorten on the program before the end of the week as well, talking about Labor leadership woes. He's got a new book out. And, look, tensions have been reignited, I think, between himself, Anthony Albanese, and the also, uh, well, the contenders perhaps, whether it's Richard Miles, whether it's Joel Fitzgibbon, whoever it is, I don't know. Uh, but certainly I would not like to be a fly on the wall the next time Anthony Albanese and Bill Shorten come together. We know what happened effectively the last time Bill Shorten and Joel Fitzgibbon came together. Thirteen, twelve, sixty-nine. the telephone number to have you say... Either way, while all this uncertainty and unsettlement continues within federal Labor, it adds more ammunition to Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, to call an early election later this year, which I... I look, I'm, I'd almost put money on it. I really would. I'd almost put money on it. Gary, are you there? Uh, yes, I am. Hello, mate. What do you want to say, Gary? Uh, yeah, look, just regarding these uh, having the, the workers to pick the, the, the um, farm fruits, uh, some are extra... Pineapples and grapes. Yeah, yeah, yep. Now it goes with it. Um, there's a there's an army of pensioners out there, grey nomads, travelling around the countryside. Um, that I'm sure would love to pick up a little bit of extra work, but sometimes they can't because it affects their pension. All the government's got to do is give an incentive. Like I think we're allowed to earn $150 a week before it affects your pension. Yep, that's right. Increase that to $250 a week or $300. It doesn't affect the government one iota um, and would uh, open up an army of people that would be able to go and work on the farms for these people. And those that could, I mean, let's face it, not every grey nomad would be up to the physicality of the job, but many would. No. And it would, what it would also do, Gary, is stop a bit of the black economy because I'll be honest, I've come across people in my life who are of pension age who basically go and work on job sites or, you know, in other areas and get paid cash in hand. Of course. You know, of course. Offer an incentive. I agree with that. That's well said, mate. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you for the call. I appreciate it. Enjoy your day. Dogs and cats may need to be vaccinated against COVID-19 to bring the pandemic under control, according to a group of scientists. It's not unthinkable that vaccination of some domestic animal species might be necessary to curb the spread of the infection. That's according to experts from two British and US universities. Really? <laughs> we know that several uh, zoo animals have caught COVID-19. But I don't know. Uh, <laughs> are we going to get to the point here in Australia where our fur babies, are we going to give Fido 
a COVID vaccine give the dog a jab? I'm not quite sure. Anyway, I suppose we'll be guided by the experts on this. 13, 12, 69. Uh, thank God it's cooler in Sydney today. It was almost unbearable yesterday. Did I read correctly? It was one of the hottest Australia days in decades. 41-odd degrees out west and high 30s in the city. Well, Lifesavers certainly yesterday uh, did a brilliant job of saving lives. In Sydney yesterday alone, there were 194 rescues. Our beaches were packed with people urged to social distance and to be safe around the water. Uh, the hot weather, of course, that's drawn um, hundreds of thousands of people to beaches and water holes around the city of Sydney over the past few days has, thank God, come to an end. It was so much easier to sleep last night when that southerly came through, bringing temperatures a little, well, certainly down to the mid-20s. Showers are on the way for my listeners on 2SM Sydney. And there's already a few... Uh, there's a bit of drizzle falling around at the moment. Is it muggy out there, though? I think it looks a little muggy. 13 12 69, the telephone number to have you say. Marcus Paul in the morning. 2SM Sydney traffic. Sutherland and Acacia Road near Florist Street, a multi-vehicle accident. Northbound Lane 3, Snives, Manavar Road approaching Garrick Road. A car breakdown eastbound Lane 2. And looking at a high volume of traffic, Centenary Drive approaching Arthur Street in both directions, but coping okay, no major delays. All the world's best shows are streaming on binge, great drama, comedy, movies and more. New customers get your 14-day free trial at binge.com.au. Binge, it's unturnoffable. That's the latest traffic on 2SM 1269. G'day, Merv Hughes here for Scott Pack Business Finance. I really hate waiting for the umpire's finger to go up, for the batsman to walk, for the cheering to begin. If you're tired of waiting on your customers to pay your invoices, talk to my friends at Scott Pack Business Finance and take control of your cash flow. They turn your unpaid invoices into cash. Scott Pack ends the wait for payment by advancing you money, your road, the very same day. So don't wait. Search for Scott Pack today. Scott Pack. Finance that keeps your business moving. Mate, what's the hurry? Yeah, but we're only doing a few k's over. Yeah, but I've got to pick up the kids. Yeah, but I'm a good driver. Yeah, but everybody speeds around here. Yeah, but there's never anyone on these roads. Yeah, but I'm running late. Yeah, but I always make this trip in a couple yeah, of hours. Yeah, but I've been driving those roads for years. Locals are being seriously hurt on our roads each year. Our mates, our families, us. The road is no place for excuses. A message from the New South Wales Government. My family's been farming this land for generations and hopefully will for many more to come. Things aren't as easy to do on the farm as they once were and we hear of too many injuries, especially to older farmers. If you've been in the game as long as me, there are things you can do to make work easier and safer. The Great Idea Bank is a guide produced by older farmers for older farmers with practical tips that can help whether you think you're old or not. For copies, visit farmsafe.org.au. When it comes to the management of pain and inflammation associated with osteo and other mild forms of arthritis, Stiff, Sore and Sorry Pain Relief Gel may assist you. Always read the label, use only as directed, and if symptoms persist, see your healthcare professional. Look for Stiff, Sore and Sorry Pain Relief Gel at pharmacies and health food stores everywhere. To find the location of your nearest Stiff, Sore and Sorry stockers, go to loveallcollection.com.au or phone Ray... 0406-671359. Peters of Kensington offers the ultimate shopping experience and you can enjoy the best of both worlds by shopping in-store or online. 
Select from an abundance of fine quality products including kitchenware, glassware, homeware, dinnerware and amazing gift ideas. If you're looking for a gift with a unique edge, Peter's themed hampers are a great idea for birthdays and other special occasions. Peter's of Kensington, 57 Anzac Parade, Kensington. Or shop online at petersofkensington.com.au. 2SM, 1269am, 2SM Digital. And online at 2SMSupernetwork.com. Genuine talk on the radio. This is Marcus Paul in the morning. If we all agreed all the time, oh, how boring would life be? Absolutely, mate. Uh, isn't yep. it great that we live in a country where we can have different opinions because there are a lot of places around this globe where you can't? You know, it's yeah, uh, that's a part of, of living in Australia, our a democracy. And as, I, as I've said most of the morning, mate, Dave, as I've said, Dave, uh, we won the lottery of life living in this wonderful country. <laughs> We're bringing you all the news and the views. Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, just want to thank Jack, who's been in touch with us on our social media. Hashtag Marcus Paul in the morning. Just go to 2smsupernetwork.com and click on my show page. You'll see all of the comments, podcasts, bits and pieces from the program, and importantly, um, a lot of banter. A lot of banter. It gets a willing, a little willing at times, but that's okay. That's all right. Uh, Jack says, wow, Marcus, you just accept what anyone tells you at times, but the facts are, and he's uh, attached a whole heap of information, the SBS, about the truth regarding the so-called free ride that some Australians think Indigenous and Torres Strait Islander Australians receive. So, yeah, thank you, mate. I will address that tomorrow in detail. I mean, there is a bit of a method to the program. I do particularly want to allow all views and people to have their say and then I'll mull it over and if I want to come back and dispute things or contest things rather than run off at the mouth immediately, I do like to do a little bit of work on it first. But look, um, it is about an exchange of ideas, this program, so I'll have a, a bit of a look at the info you've sent me and I'll think about it myself and come back and respond to some of the uh, comments that have been made on the program today. I just don't like to shoot at the hip. Sometimes you need to hear what other people have to say, perhaps then go away and think about it and then come back with your response. Sometimes I find that's a little better, for me anyway. <laughs> 13 12 69 is the number if you'd like to have you say. One thing I did talk about earlier this morning, and I, I did want to replay this call, it's a so-called shame on the city of Sydney, but I guess this could be correlated to any major urban area around Australia. It's a shame on our city. Vast differences in lifespans across Sydney. It takes less than 20-odd minutes to drive from Bidwill, which is a lower socioeconomic area out in Sydney's west, to Cherrybrook on the M7 motorway. Cherrybrook, of course, is in the hills area, and people there tend to have higher disposable incomes, own their own homes, etc. It costs a fortune to buy into that area. In Bidwell's local public health area, the median age of death is 69. However, up the road at Cherrybrook, the figure is 88. What's going on? There's a 19-year gap. Is it emblematic of disparities in health and economic welfare across relatively small distances in Greater Sydney? Well, of course it is. I mean, the average death age, if you like, for the whole of Greater Sydney, so that's just an average of the entire city sits at around 81. 
However, virtually all suburbs with a median death age of 86 to 88, that is, those that live the longest, tend to live in wealthy areas to the city's north and east. Probably no surprises there. Three quarters of districts with the lowest longevity, a median death age of 69 to 72, were in less wealthy parts of western and southwestern Sydney. So, in other words, out west near Penrith, lower Blue Mountains areas, out into the Richmond-Windsor areas, and down into the MacArthur region, where, to be perfectly honest, the vast majority of Sydney's five and a half million people live. Why is that the case? Well, I've done some work on it. We've spoken to the Public Health Information Development Unit this morning. Uh, They're at Torrens University, and there are some major problems. And again, I put it down to the fact that there's a lack of opportunity in Bidwell and other areas where people have just been thrown together in slums. A concentration, if you like, of public housing estates, and you know they're dotted all over our states and also in Queensland. Why aren't we adopting a more salt and pepper approach? That is, rebuilding of uh, public housing stock in some more affluent areas of Sydney. I know the NIMBYs won't like this. I know those people living in the eastern suburbs don't want the Westies encroaching on their territory. But maybe in order to close some of this disparity and to increase the likelihood of people to get greater opportunities in work, greater opportunities in health, greater opportunities to advance their own lives and live longer, maybe that's something that needs to be done. I talked about it uh, this morning on the program. Then I received a call from this young fellow. Yeah, Marcus, um, I know you're not going to agree with my comments, but, mate, you mean to tell me that if you grab, say, a family from Bidwell, yep. okay, that, that are renowned for youth abusing alcohol no, and drugs... No, 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 no. Sorry, you don't speak in generals, uh, in general terms. Uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm just because I grew up, I grew up in Minto. Yeah. Okay. Now Minto was no, no better than Bidwell. Okay. It was a housing commission area, and and of course there was a, a high, high uh, rate of unemployment. Yeah. But it was on my, on my onus to get up and do something about it, and I did. Well, you I did. Up, so what? I went to so, okay. Yes. So, but so all I'm saying is, it's yeah. up to each individual to do what they can to better their lives. Yeah, but shouldn't we you know, be giving more people an opportunity to do that? Uh, I mean, look, I, I applaud and I understand. Exa- I know exactly what you're saying, George. Yes, uh, of course there are people who use and abuse drugs and alcohol in lower socioeconomic areas like Bidwell or Minto. You've pulled yourself out of it. Shouldn't we be encouraging others to do the same? And shouldn't we give them opportunities to do that in other parts of Sydney? Hang on a second, Mark, Marcus. I had the, I've got the exact same opportunity. I had the exact same opportunity as the guys that grew up in, say, for example, St Andrews, which was you know a private estate with you know like a yeah not a wealthy wealthy area, but a, 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 a much more wealthy area. So every Australian has the exact same opportunity as any other Australian. It's just up to the individual to take the initiative and do something about it. All right. Well, mate, I'm glad that you have, George. And I think we've opened up a can of worms here and I want to talk about it. And I thank you for your candour and I thank you for your call. All right. So that was George this morning. Is it as simple as what George says? Is it as easy as that? Um, Is it, you know, we comparing apples with apples or something completely different? Um, I don't know. 
it made me think, and I thought I'd put it out to callers this morning, 13, 12, 69. Do people in lower socioeconomic areas, do you agree with George, do they have similar um, opportunities that say somebody, all right, is someone in Bidwell going to do as well and do they have as much opportunities as someone in Bondi? Okay, Bidwell and Bondi. Let's look at those two, the two Bs. If you grow up in Bondi and you grow up in Bidwell, do you have equal opportunities? I would argue, no, you don't. What do you say? 131269, the telephone number. Marcus Paul in the morning, filling in for Lawsy. Time for a little bit of music while you get dialing. Love the film clips of this. Wonderful. All right, Marcus Paul in the morning. For the John Laws Morning Show, Lawsy back on Monday, 131269 is my telephone number. Brad, hello, mate. How are you? Hi, Marcus. How are you going? Well, thank you, mate. Uh, you wanted to weigh in on this conversation in regards to why it is that people in lower socioeconomic areas of Sydney are living far less longer, 19 years in some cases, to those in more affluent areas. Okay. Well, I was listening to that gentleman that said he was from Minto yeah. uh, earlier, and I worked in Minto Ingleburn. Yep. I don't live in Minto Ingleburn, but I worked in that area um, building villas, townhouses, units, etc. Yeah. Back in the early 80s. And um, what I observed was that there was a big percentage of individuals that didn't want to work. Um, they simply did not want to work. They got a handout from the government. Yep. And that was their life. Now, here's two examples of two individuals that had were brought up in the same household with the same advantages and disadvantages, with the same education, and they went in two directions. Sure. One was my father. One was my uncle. Mm-hmm. One lived in housing commission, and one made a financial success of his life. And I mean, when I say a financial success, I mean very, very well off. Yeah, I mean, look, that doesn't necessarily so, equate to happiness or success, but I, I, I take the point. Yes. I'm just saying that, yep. it, that I believe that gentleman was correct when sure. you say if you're chasing financial success, mm. then all you need to do really is step out the front door and go to work, yep. be really wise with your money. Yep. Um, instead of buying the cigarettes and the alcohol, maybe invest the money wisely. Maybe save it. Yeah. Maybe not expect to have everything today. No, that's well and, said. Yeah, well said. I don't understand um, how some young people can just be content with, I don't know, getting the doll, just sitting back, you know, pulling a cone, smoking drugs, whatever but, but it is. Are, I don't there get are it. Some but there are some people that just, that's what they want in life. Mm. And, Where's the and drive? So, and so if that's what they want in life, who is it for us to say that they should have, that they should want what we want? Well, that's true, but uh, it is a concern, though, when you're finding some of these people um, aren't living as longer as long as others. But mind you, that that could all well be because they've had bad life choices. You know, smoking cigarettes—that's a bad life choice. Drinking too much alcohol—that's a bad life choice. Uh, it's not obviously not just contained to lower socioeconomic areas, but certainly a greater proportion of people, I reckon, in those areas probably uh, do uh, engage in that 
destructive behaviour. And not eating, not eating correctly, not True. eating a good, a good um, balanced diet. I mean, it all, it all comes into it. And, yeah. Um, I, I take I've the point. I've seen examples yep. of it. I've yep. seen good examples of it in my family. Yeah. And I've got, uh, you know, I've got a brother that chose not to um, exercise like he probably should have, mm. and and eat um, like he probably should have. And he's got sugar diabetes. Yeah. Look, we've so got to remember as well. Yeah, we've got to remember as well. Um, you know, monkey see, monkey do. And unfortunately, when you know you have people brought up in lower socio-economic areas in any place, I'm not just picking on Sydney's west and southwest, but quite often, um, you know, they will follow in the footsteps of their parents. I mean, I would hope that. You know, I've inspired and uh, the mother of my children has inspired, and I know she has, our boys to want to work hard to get ahead in life and to understand that not everything's going to be handed to you. All right, mate, that's a great call, Brad. Thank you so much for it. Enjoy your day. Janelle, are you there, Dal? Yeah. Hello, Janelle. What do you want to talk about? Um, I was just going to comment on the young ones these days. On the young ones uh, these days, yes. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, <laughs> They don't res- like. They got no respect. Mm. They don't respect others. Not all of them. Um, uh, let's be honest. There's, I would say, a very small minority of, of young ones who have no respect and no, uh, you know, no, uh, I guess, respect for authority. Absolutely. Yeah, and um, I mean, I reckon they they should bring the discipline like back into. Like, did it hurt you? Did you get? Disciplined at school, or oh yeah, Killer Colleen yeah. was the man out at Cambridge Park High School. John, you know exactly where I'm coming from. <laughs> uh, he he flogged me to within an inch of my life on two occasions, and it brought me back. It brought me from a from a young bloke with a mate who went out and used to you know get on the grog before a, a Davidson uh, Davidson cricket match. I think it was the Davidson Cup there, and we turned up. Me and my mate turned up one day. We'd had a beer each. He smelt it, uh, dragged us back to uh, the school, flogged us with a cane, and basically told us that if we didn't pull pull ourselves together, we'd be out on our ears. I learned a lesson. I um, I was shopping with my mother. This is when I was about five, six years old. I remember it clearly. <laughs> about the only thing I remember clearly back then. But yeah, yeah, I I was cracking a real tantrum. I know. Anyway. I thought, oh, she won't get me in front of all these people in the shop. Mm. Well, she, she only slapped me. That didn't hurt. But do you know what really hurt? Tell me. my pride. Well, that's right. That's I've right. I've never, ever, ever, ever done the ever again. Well, there you go. Look, I, I think the problem, uh, obviously, it starts at home in some areas, and, and then, unfortunately, it extends to things like our judiciary, where we're seeing 17-year-old kids continually, not all of them, of course not, but we're seeing some 17-year-old kids continually stealing cars, getting up to mischief, going on joyrides. Well, we know in Brisbane it ended in absolute tragedy over the week, uh, sorry, over the Australia Day public holiday, and now we've got a man, a woman who was pregnant and their dog all dead because a 17-year-old just couldn't behave himself. All right, 13, 12, 69, if you would like to have your say. Uh, This one from Robert. 
Marcus, Norfolk Island has no port to take anything there, costs a fortune, and locals, I'm sure, would oppose development on the scale you are suggesting. Before you run off at the mouth, go visit the place and you will understand the localism and resistance any change would face. All right, Robert. Well, why don't we let, I don't know, the thousand-odd or how many people live on Norfolk Island decide their own fates then, hey? How about we, as taxpayers of New South Wales or Queensland, for that matter, if they take over the joint, how about we just not provide them with adequate taxpayer-funded services? Uh, I've, got a, I've got news for you. Um, Robert, you know, you reckon resistance would stop any change if the government wanted to go ahead with it? You're off your rocker. I mean, plenty of people in New South Wales oppose privatisation of things like roads that lead to tolls. Plenty of people in New South Wales oppose the privatisation of health services, of correctional facilities. Plenty of people oppose a lot of things. And you're telling me that if a government or taxpayers invests in Norfolk Island that there won't be appetite for change. Well, if there's no appetite for change, tough titties. We're the ones who are paying their health and providing them with the services. And for any state government, be it New South Wales, most likely Queensland, to take over Norfolk Island, if they damn well want to put a port in, they should be able to put a port in. And the few people there at Norfolk shouldn't get total right Sure, they should be able to have their say on any future development, but they shouldn't get the yes or no on it. It should go ahead regardless. Otherwise, why are we investing in it? See, this is the problem. Uh, You sound to me like a bit of a nimby, Robert, a not-in-my-backyard kind of guy. But you're more than happy, I'm sure, to take take taxpayer-funded health care and all the rest of it. You know, we've got to put things in perspective, Robert. Life, unfortunately, is not all about what we want. Sometimes we need to, I don't know, maybe compromise. Uh, Now, thank you very much to Anne, who is an intensive care nurse. You'd be a wonderful person, Anne. I really admire people like you. Uh, Look, I won't be mentioning the drugs that you've talked about uh, in in your email, but I, I do want to thank you uh, very much for your uh, for your your message. Uh, again, I I need to be very clear. Uh, I just have to be very careful. And I know the the drugs you're talking about have been used in hospitals for 50 years, and they are antiviral drugs. I get all of that, and they're approved for certain things, but they are not approved for COVID-19, and that is why I cannot allow people on the air to talk about these drugs as a possible treatment for COVID. If they've been used for HIV and cancer treatment and they've worked to some effect, wonderful. Absolutely. And I know you can buy some of them over the counter at a chemist shop. That's part of the problem. What happens if I if we I allow somebody on that says, well, take this and you'll never get COVID if you've got a, you know, and, and, and somebody just hears that. And then goes down, gets a script from their doctor, goes to the chemist, gets it, and overdoses. Well, then I'd look like a complete and utter moron and somebody who's irresponsible. That's the point. But I do appreciate your uh, your email, and Thank you. Alex, good morning. How are you? Yeah, good morning. 
Marcus, Marcus, you do a wonderful job. Uh, Thanks, speak your mind, and that is top of the range. Thank you. Uh, Marcus, this lout, no hope of the alleged uh, 50 previous convictions mm. that killed these two people yesterday. Yes. Uh, will he be charged with murder? Well, he's, yeah, murder? well yes, he that's has been. about it. He has been charged with murder. It is murder. Oh, yes. well, that's great. Well, and now... Uh, can they, while they're doing that, can they bring back the hanging? <laughs> I, I can remember oh. when Gene Lee was hung and uh, yeah. Ronald Ryan was hung. Mm. I'm up in my 90s, but uh, yeah. well, uh, I can no one talks that. about them now, but that helped cleaned up the area a little bit. True, although do we really want uh, to live in a country where we hang 17-year-olds who've made a, an obviously terrible decision that's cost other people their lives. I don't know. I don't know whether we should be doing that. Way too young. There is, I don't know, possibly after 20 or 30 years in jail, uh, maybe this person might come out a better person. You'd only hope so, but I don't like the idea of of hanging or putting to death 17-year-old kids. I just don't. 13, 12, 69. Paddy, hello. Are you there? Oh, g'day, mate. How are you? All right, Paddy. What's on your mind? Hey, thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to um, make a little comment about that lady that, you know, said she's helping people and people are losing their homes. And and it boils down to the unrealistic expectations that um, young people, particularly millennials, um, have on what they can and can't afford in this day and age. Because, mm. you know, when when I first bought my home back in um, back in 1985, yeah. uh, the interest rates were, you know, bordering up around 14%. I and, remember, and they only yes. Were, and they only went up from there. And look, um, I was hard working, and um, and I had a bit of a nest egg, and um, I could afford a small two bedroom cottage weatherboard that needed repairs mm-hmm. with a carport. Yep. And this this day and age, it seems that you know the 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 average first home buyer wants to buy a four bedroom home with an integrated double carport um, <laughs> with two, with you know four bedrooms ducted air conditioning. Yeah, they and, all um, want a McMansion. That's the problem. Everybody wants to start at the top. It doesn't work like that. It's so disappointing. And then um and then you know that when things turn and you've mm. got to sort of pre-calculate that. And I'm a reasonably good economic manager, but goodness me, um I looked at that and thought you know if interest rates hit 17, which they did, yes. Um, I could still make more repayments, but um, but this, this day and age, with the interest rates at a record low, um, and um, people aren't willing to, you know, get in and get some people into house share and stuff, or or do whatever, yep. and then they, pardon the French, but they bitch and moan mm. and um, and stuff. And look, I know times are hard, yep. and you could say things are unprecedented, but then again, you know, when interest rates were seventeen percent, you know, was that not unprecedented? True, uh, but it was a lot cheaper to buy a home. Uh, look, uh, but your point is absolutely valid. Why do you need something that opens and shuts at the push of a button, you know, in your first time? I think the uh, the big issue here is, look, a lot of the uh, the builders of first homes make them very attractive to young home buyers. Oh, we have, don't they? What? We have ho- house and la- land packages available out in some areas that sit at around you know, six to $700,000 if you're lucky. But, I mean, ultimately, uh, that's the I mean, that's the entry point, really, isn't it, for a first home uh, on a well, house and land package in Sydney in particular? Marcus, it is. But um, mm. the thing about it, I bought my first home up in Rockhampton. Yep. And, um, and then I bought my second home in Dysart out in the mining areas. Yep. Um, and, 
I, I could never in my wildest dreams, even now at 56 years old, um, th- think about buying even a home in Brisbane. You know, we've yeah. got so the 10 prob- acres out yeah. here in Laidley South, and, nice. um, and, and it's, it's lovely, yeah. but it's affordable. Very true. I'll leave it there because I do need to go, Paddy. Great call. The problem is, and I understand it, young people who are brought up in places like Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane, but Sydney and Brisbane in particular for my listeners today, young people that are brought up in these areas don't want to necessarily leave. And I understand that. Why would you want to leave a place that you grew up in where your family and your friends and your loved ones have all nurtured you and grown up with you? Marcus Paul filling in for John Laws. Call 13 12 69. All right, well, thank you so much for all your phone calls, emails and text messages on the program today. Uh, it's been a busy one. Let's do it again tomorrow, shall we? Uh, only a few more days to put up with me, OK? A couple of more days. And then from Monday, Australia's King of Talkback, John Laws returns across Australia here on the Super Radio Network and other stations. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Take care. We'll chat again tomorrow from 9am New South Wales Daylight Saving Time.